Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. Today we will be looking at G.I. Joe issue 279 with a very special guest, as well as our regular favourites. And now, without further ado, here's the Peter Cook to my Dudley Moore. It's my co-host, Tim. Tim, how are you, sir? I'm well, Mark. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. The sun is shining. Things are open. It's amazing. This is a a tiny window. The the issue of G.I. Joe that we're talking about today was released on Wednesday and exactly I got it yesterday Friday and we're recording on a Saturday it's it's all go it's real time yeah I mean this show has been going the best part of uh of over two years now and you know we started with issue one of ARA doing a few issues every single week and we've got to the point uh now where we're in real time talking about a comic that came out <laughs> a matter of days ago. So it is uh, very, very cool to, to sort of be right in the present. And that brief delay of, uh, of, of having uh, between issue uh, 278 and, and this one coming out felt like forever because, um, you know, I've, I'm all up to date with my G.I. Joe. So um, looking forward to the latest, uh, latest issue coming out right to the minute uh but yeah let's not waffle on tim we've got a special guest who is holding on and waiting to be introduced so let's play that jingle all right stop whatever you're doing tj's back the airwaves were chewing rocking a gi joe podcast interview special questions will be asked will it ever stop yo i don't think so not as long as someone's publishing joe artists writers gi joe fanboys let's get things started and hope we don't annoy our guest in the studio right now they've come in for a chat discussing when where and how probing we're going in deep anything left we might as well be asleep questioning them about the gi joe history unwrapping answers like a whodunit mystery tj interview tj interview tj interview so who have we got on the show today it is Alex Ironhead Sanchez. He's a comic artist based in NYC. He's recently been working on uh, Pandemica for IDW. Previous work has included Battlestar Galactica for Dynamite, Katana and JSA classified for DC Comics, Star Wars The Old Republic for Dark Horse. 
He's a co-host on the Infinity Equation podcast, a toy enthusiast, and has worked on toy projects of his own, including working with Jason Egido on one-sixth toy projects, such as the Five Faces of Freddy Krueger set. But most importantly for us, he was the artist on G.I. Joe Special Missions Part 1, which covered a stalker spotlight and the artist of the book we are talking about today, G.I. Joe 279 Untold Tales Part 4. There <laughs> we go. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks for having me. How's everyone doing today? Better now that you're here. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for the compliments. And very well researched. You pulled out things that even I didn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Did I cover the major bases? Was there any? Was there anything there? In your plotted notes that 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 we should that that we should be familiar with. Um, no, you pretty much covered it all. Although I am currently uh, working on a 100-page graphic novel for AfterShock Comics, uh-huh. uh, so I was actually started. I started working on that, and simultaneously working on the latest issue of GI Joe. So uh, it was a hectic two months for me during that time period, <laughs> to say the least. Wow. Who's the who's the writer on the Aftershock graphic novel? Um, can it's, can you say it's two? Yeah, yeah, it's two uh, writers, uh, Steve Orlando and Steve Fox. Cool. Yeah, and I believe they're dabbling right now in some Marvel projects. Mm-hmm. Can't tell you which ones because um, I really don't <laughs> keep. I don't really collect comics and haven't since I was pretty much a teenager. I just, especially when I started working in the industry, you know, I spent like. 12 15 hours a day drawing comic books the last thing i wanted to do was you know go to the local comic book store and you know see my huge pull list so uh yeah i once i started working in the industry i kind of just delved into the 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 art aspect of it and really didn't and stopped collecting comics to be honest with you I have found with a few of my friends who draw for marvel and dc and image that uh, they still go to the comic book store, uh, mine, and mm-hmm. uh, they still buy some books, but not a ton. And they tend mm-hmm. to sort of look through the books and enjoy them, but not not necessarily read them or not a lot of like month to month collecting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. for the reasons you just said. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, I collect a bunch of toys, you know, G.I. Joe figures, of course. And all my extra pocket money goes into that mostly. So um, it, it's kind of like a break from, from the art thing, you know? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, now you've raised it. Let's talk about the, the toys. So I saw uh, an Instagram post from, from you um, as I was doing my research that said, I think it said that you'd completed your collection of 25th anniversary GI Joe. Figures. Yeah. So sounds like you're, you're deep into to the collecting and, and including the modern stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I only really collect the modern Joes. Um, okay. I don't collect the uh, the six inch, the uh, classified, just the twenty fifth mm-hmm. anniversary, just because I think they got so deep into that line, they pretty much covered every character, even after the line was uh, discontinued, and they just did the uh, collectors club figures. I mean that 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 went on for years. So I don't think that you can really get any better than the twenty fifth anniversary for me, anyways, just because I'm a cartoon accurate collector 
Mm -hmm. And and they had so many variations of the characters, whether, you know, you wanted to collect just like the vintage toy inspired 25th figures or you wanted to collect the comic book inspired figures or the cartoon. I like the cartoon accurate ones. So the new classifieds, they're, they, they look cool. Um, they're bigger scale, but they don't remind me of the cartoons. And that's like that's my nostalgia hook, you know. Uh-huh. Okay. And is it is it the is it the cartoons above the the comic as well, the G.I. Joe comic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Just because I I literally got into G.I. Joe in 1982. I think it was the end of 82 mm. when when the cartoon launched. Um yeah, so that was in my consciousness before I even got into comics. <laughs> I think I got into comics uh maybe like 2 or 3 years later. Wow. Okay. And yeah. did you pick? Did you pick up the GI Joe? Oh comic yeah. Book I, and reading that in parallel. Oh, I had them all. I had them all. I had the entire collection um, up until my mom threw away all my comics because she didn't oh. know any better. <laughs> oh, yeah, that yeah. Hurts. I was like, Mom, what are you doing? They're in oh. bags and boards. Like, oh no, that means I want to keep them. She's like, Oh, <laughs> I didn't know. So. Oh, no. No. So I had to start over from scratch, but uh, I didn't start over on the Joe line, on the Joe comics. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I okay. kind of just stuck to um, Uncanny X-Men and Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there's a lot of that to collect, isn't there? Oh, yeah, I still have them. Like, those comics that I had as a child, after the first batch was thrown away, I still have them. And I collected a lot of comics for, you know, many years afterwards, and then about 10, 12 years ago... I was looking at all my bins and I was like, okay, I don't, I don't plan on reading any of these, you know, cause I had like doubles, triples, you know, it was yeah. during the nineties when everyone's buying, you know, you thought you could pay off your mortgage, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. reselling your comics, you bought doubles and you bought triples and then you bought a bunch of stuff that you weren't really interested in, but yeah. I guess cause of the hype or whatever. So you so had a hologram on it or whatever. Yeah. It was a holochrome, you know, cover or whatever, gold foil back forth, you know, wrap around. Um, I got rid of all that stuff. I trimmed the fat. I had about, I'd say about 10, 12,000 comics and I'm mm-hmm. down to like 3,000 and they're just the books that I know I'm going to read, you know, in my golden years. Not that mm-hmm. I haven't read a bunch of them already, but I, that's going to be part of my retirement plan. Alex, oh, where, where did you buy your comics? Uh, well, uh, we had a few local shops here in New York City. Um, the first comic book store that I can remember going to was called um, Big Apple Comics. No, West Side Comics, which was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And then uh, there, Big Apple Comics, which was in, uh, also on the Upper West Side. And then there was another one called Funny Business Comics which I got actually got some local press because um, I guess the guy, the owner, this older gentleman was like sold like one of like the highest, you know, most valuable comics at that time. I can't remember what the issue was, but he made news and I was like, oh yeah, that's my local comic book store. But all those guys are gone. And the only thing that's left now is Midtown Comics, really. Were you buying comics uh, off of any newsstands or? Um... Oh my God! I used that was before I even knew what a comic book store was. That's how I actually started um, uh, collecting. Well, when I was in school, uh, I traded some toys for a stack of comics. I didn't know what they were, and uh, I got hooked. And 
prior to me even knowing what a comic book store was, we used to go to the newsstand and get them off the racks, the spin racks, the magazine stores, all that. I mean, I can remember there's a there's a great issue of Daredevil written by um, a lady called Annie Nascenti, which she's my favorite writer of all time. Um, she she's the one that created the Typhoid Mary character in Daredevil. Yeah. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. yeah, and I, thankfully I was able to work with her on Katana for DC Comics uh, back in like 2010, or oh, cool. which is a great highlight. But uh, she wrote this issue where all of Daredevil's uh, villains gang get together and just beat the hell out of them, and they left them for dead. It was like a double sized issue, and I remember. This is pre-comic book store, so I was waiting for the next issue to come out on the newsstands, and it didn't come out for like a good three months. Because at that time, it's like not like newsstands were on schedule every month. You know, there were times where you could go a couple of months and, and miss an issue and not even realize it because, you know, you're just a kid or whatever. So I remember waiting about three months for this next issue to come out. I thought the series was over because they literally left him for dead. And then three months later, I see it on the newsstand and I yelled so hard. I was so loud that I scared about a group of people right next to me. They were like, oh, what's wrong? I was like, oh my God, this comic book, nothing, leave me, leave me alone. So uh, yeah, I do remember the spin racks and newsstands and all that stuff. Those days, I wish, man, I don't know what happened, but I mean, I do know what happened, but I just wish those times would uh, come around again. But doubt it. Can you paint a picture for our listeners of what life is like at the Joe Kubert School? Oh, it's 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 great. It's amazing. It's like you're surrounded by a bunch of people who love art and comics and these characters as much as you do. And they also love all the other stuff that's, you know, because when you talk about comic books, you talk about toys, you talk about video games, you talk about, you know, this, that, and the other. And just imagine being, like, in a really small college campus. You know, I think the first year I was at the Cuber School, we had 200 students in the, in the entire school. And you were... Th- and you lived and basically we used to call it the frat house because it's just like this big house that used to be actually used to be the school itself, but they grew. So they moved the school facilities to a, uh, I think it was a high school. Yeah. And they used the old facilities, which was this big mansion, uh, as like dormitory for the first year students. So that first year of the Cuber school, it's just like you wake up, you know, eight o'clock go to class 8 30 and like all your classes you have two classes each day and three hours long uh break in between and it's just like you're just engulfed in art the technique you know the techniques of art the uh sharpening your skills uh learning storytelling uh learning uh lettering which is you know everyone does it on the computer now but back then lettering was actually an art within itself because you can put as much of your personality in lettering as you can in, you know, drawing a character. So, and then there was also the an, an animation department, which was very small. There was only a, a handful of students that decided to go that route, uh, you know, as opposed to doing the comic book thing. But you were taught by great um, artists who were experienced in the field, like Alex Stevens, who uh, worked for DC, Vertigo, uh, different kinds of artists. Fernando Ruiz was our first year narrative which is the narrative class which is it's like your core class like that's the one where you actually draw 
comic book pages and you're taught the art of storytelling. Our, our instructor the first year was a gentleman by the name of Fernando Ruiz who drew Archie comics for years and years and years. And he was one of the best instructors I've ever had. And mind you, I went to regular college. And I'm, what I mean regular college is like where you get your, your BA, you know. Um, I, I studied architectural design for three years and then I switched mm-hmm. over to fine arts and I ended up getting my BA in fine arts. And Fernando Ruiz was one of the best instructors that I ever had because he was so giving and open to giving you your advice that you you saw you, I learned so much of my technique about from what the from the things that he taught us in that class so um just a bunch of great students uh great students great teachers and then you have Joe Kubert there who you know was a comic book legend kind of overseeing things and if you were uh disciplined enough to make it to the third year which is the final year you were taught by Joe Kubert narrative wow. and that was a whole other treat within itself Wow. So, so what year would have, we, what years were you at the at the school? Two thousand to two thousand three, four ish. Because we start in fall, two thousand, mm-hmm. and then uh, we were done in May of two thousand four. Can I can you talk about finishing and uh, how does the school? How did specifically for you? How did the school? Uh, set you up with interviews or do you just start talking to um, editors go to conventions yeah yeah it's kind of a, a little bit of everything um the way that the school prepared us is really a lot of it has to do with just cons- repetition and consistency because um, a lot of people don't realize that one of the toughest parts if not the toughest part of drawing comics is just sitting down and doing it I mean, it's very easy to get distracted. Uh, you have to focus on a piece of paper for a very long time. So it's not unnatural to hear an artist, a comic book artist say, you know, I spent eight, ten hours straight, you know, just drawing one comic book page. You kind of have to figure out um, how long does it take you to finish one page and whether you're penciling and inking it or you're just penciling it. You kind, you have to, You have to create create a schedule based on that and the school taught us how to do that they taught us how to use mixed media how to use things that aren't just pencils you know paints acrylic paints oil paints the computer uh i i was in school during a time when there was a transition from the old way of things of an old way of the way things were done to the way things are done now and what i mean by that is just um when i started out we used to send our original pages via fedex you know, via couriers. And now everything, you know, scan and sent computer. So when I graduated, the computer took a hold of the industry and it's where it is now because of it. I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? Did you did you have work waiting for you as you graduated? Okay, yeah. So another thing that the school did is they encouraged us. They didn't take us, but they encouraged us to go to conventions so I would get together this is another thing great thing about the school is like I could tell 10 20 guys hey guys you know you want to go to this convention you know it's it's in it's in Atlanta or Georgia you know or it's in Texas or it's in North Carolina or wherever Philly wherever you guys want to go yeah 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 you know 
get three cars and we all head out there with our portfolios in hand. And this is during a time when you can go to a convention, show your portfolio to an editor that is actually there at the at the publisher's booth, and he can give you a, a job right there on the spot. So I did that for about two, three years. And uh, on one trip to Wizard World Philadelphia, I met an editor from Dark Horse, and he liked my work. And he was like, here's my card. Give me a call when you get back home. And I, ta- I called him. Uh, by the time I was about to graduate from the school, I was already drawing my first pro gig. Oh, and what was that? Uh, it was a Buffy the Vampire Slayer spinoff series called Tales of the Vampires. And I did a story called The Framing Story, which is basically the bookend story of each issue. So each issue, which cons- consisted of 22 pages, I did four of the 22 pages, which were the bookends. And eventually got collected into the graphic novel, and it was written by Joss Whedon, who I'm sure everybody knows who that is. Um, so yeah, that was my first my first gig. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, it was quite a big big book at the time because it was a Buffy spinoff, which was obviously huge at the at the time, and, and yeah. being written by the the showrunner himself, um, mm-hmm. you know, as a comic. Um, compared to to most licensed properties being you know handed off to to other creators was quite a, quite a coup. Yeah, and whenever I go to, I mean, I rarely go to conventions. I really only go to the uh, uh, the big New York Comic Con here anymore. And I don't. I'm not a big convention guy. Like I said, I like to stay home and draw <laughs> majority of the time. But um, when I where I do conventions, the Buffy book is always still. You know, however, 18 mm-hmm. years later, you know, one of the books that people come up and ask me to sign to this day. So, Alex, how did you get in? Uh, how did you get on an, an editor's radar to draw G.I. Joe? Oh, God, I think, well, Tom Waltz is the editor uh, over there at IDW for G.I. Joe. And I've been working, doing projects for him for years now. And uh, even before he was on G.I. Joe, I believe. So when he moved over to G.I. Joe and I was still, you know, in contact with him, it just kind of lined up that way. So, yeah, let's yeah let's talk about a bit more yeah. uh, about um, how how 251 happened i guess was as a as a gi joe fan was it kind of a thing on your bucket list that, that oh, you absolutely yeah. wanted to have a chance at drawing an issue of gi joe eventually oh yeah absolutely absolutely anytime i get the opportunity to work on one of those you know vintage 80s ips like the gi joes and like the um transformers or anything like that i will find a way to 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 squeeze it in like i mentioned before i'm working on a 100 page graphic novel but that didn't stop me from saying <laughs> yeah i want to draw this issue of gi joe um so yeah it's definitely was still is even you know i'd love to do more gi joe stuff um mm-hmm. it, definitely on my pro bucket list yeah and and what was what i noticed was that for t- 250 both 251 and 279 um you've you've drawn gatefold covers yeah that was um, those were both my idea <laughs> yeah, i was gonna, I was gonna yeah. ask was that something they asked for or just something no that you no for? it's just something that i was like hey you know let me do a double <laughs> yeah well that's because i had um a good enough relationship with my editor tom to mm-hmm. be able to even bring that up you know normally i wouldn't be that pushy maybe yeah. i would actually but um with tom more so because i i know that tom 
wants to put out the best comic book out there so for gi joe because he himself is also a big fan too Mm -hmm. which is um which is not rare but when you can find an editor that that is a fan of the stuff that 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 he's editing then that's always a plus absolutely it just makes it easier to to work with because you already have like that mutual ground that mutual fandom ground you know to build to to bounce ideas off of and and as cool as the the cover to 251 was um i remember at the time thinking yeah you know stalkers there but it would with the with those guys chasing him on on the river and he's coming mm-hmm. off um and it looks like it's maybe you know their Viet Cong possibly so you know some it's kind of um set up a little bit like that and i thought you know it would be you know it would have pinged maybe a little bit more if it was a all all out cobra uh, you know, attack scene, and then I saw on your your social media the uh-huh. the the, the, the rough draft of it, and uh-huh. and I was blown away. I was like, wow. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah. That was that. What happened there is, um, the covers always get. Uh, we always get our cover projects. Even if we're you know if we're doing the the interiors, we always get the covers in advance mm-hmm. of the yep. uh, the interior script. So I think it's because the way Larry, Larry Hammer works is he's like has an idea and he just puts it down and then he moves on to the next issue and he, you know, so he's work, he's, he's like planting little seeds of ideas with these issues. And I think he works so far in advance sometimes that, or at least he plots things so far in advance sometimes that when they gave me the cover assignment, they were like, okay, just put a stalker looking like a badass and, uh, that's all that that's literally all the description the entire description that he gave me just draw stalker looking like a badass something like that i'm paraphrasing um and i did that i drew the pencils i was like man i want to cram in all the things that i want to draw about gi joe so i put in i think i put in uh the moccasin i put in the pterodrome in the background uh i think i put some cobra soldiers in there maybe i put some um some uh, fire bats yeah. Um, I can't remember, but it was <laughs> it was completely filled with like Cobra versus Stalker, and Stalker had a look of like uh, just tired, being tired. And when I sent the pencils in, they were like, "This is great." So I think I waited like about a month for to get the script. And when I got the script, uh, my editor was like, "Oh, I'm 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 I'm." CCing Larry and he has some some things to talk to you about and Larry's like okay the story is actually about like stalker and like the Vietnamese and we're gonna need you to change all that background stuff and I need you to change stalkers expression I was like oh okay no big deal I mean you get asked to do revisions sometimes you get asked to do revisions a lot Sometimes you don't get to add, you don't get asked to do revisions at all. You know, it's just like a mixed bag sometimes. And I'm not going to argue with Larry Hammond. You know, the guy. If anyone knows Joe Joe, a real American hero, Larry mm-hmm. Hammond does. So I was like, oh yeah, cool. But uh, so I changed it, and I, it's like a flashback to, I guess, a flashback amalg- amalgamation of like, because Stalker's in his current Joe fatigues. But it's kind of taking place back, like during the Viet Cong, the Vietnam era. Um, so I had to change, take all the Cobra guys, take out the Terradrome, which was fine. But the part that kind of irked me a little bit, and, and when I say irked, I don't mean like 
damn, damn you, Larry or Tom, you know, it's just whenever you change the expression of something that you've already drawn, you kind of lose uh, like an emotional layer to it. So I wish I would have been able to have kept. And the reason that he said that I should change Stalker's expression is because he says Stalker never shows any emotion whatsoever. So it made sense. I changed it. He's got more of a blank expression. He's kind of looking back behind him to see what's going on. He hears the noise of the uh, the Viet Cong in the, in the boat. And I changed also, Stalker had the um, the jetpack, the G.I. Joe yeah. jetpack. Jump. Yeah, and which I was telling a story with that because the jetpack was destroyed, which means, you know, he was getting shot at. He got hit in the jetpack. He's grazed on the arm. And Larry's like, nope, got to get rid of that because, you know, there weren't no jetpacks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those kinds of little revisions, uh, if you guys, um, I think I also have the um, the finished cover posted up there yeah. um, for anyone that's listening to kind of see and compare. Um, so, yeah, those were the revisions I had to do. I wish I could have. What I should have done is I should have made copies of those pencils at a high res so that way i could just ink it uh, mm. on my own and like maybe like sell it out as a print or something yeah, yeah. because i think it was i actually like it more than the cover that was published but it just doesn't really connect to the story inside so i understand why the changes had to be made sure but yeah a, sh- a shame but can understand the the thinking behind yeah. it and i guess as a huge gi joe joe fan um the story itself was was mostly the G.I. Joe's kind of in, in Mufti fighting mm-hmm. against uh, terrorists again. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't necessarily get to, to scratch the full G.I. Joe itch in terms of yeah. showing them all in their, their costumes against all yeah. the Cobras and stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's why I like my favorite pages in that issue are the first few pages mm-hmm. because you actually, I think you see Stalker in his normal fatigues and everybody else is pretty much in like, you know, civilian wear right from what i remember yeah 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 they, they're kind of like on an undercover mission for most yeah of them, so they're, kind they're of in a dressed. hotel or something mm. like that yeah that's right yeah, it's, this was like i think this was like five years ago already <laughs> oh crikey <laughs> it feels it feels very recent to me because because yeah. um, we were it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about it on the on the podcast mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess uh let's see what was the cover date for this uh it's um 2000... April 2018. Oh, okay. So not that long ago, three years ago. Yeah. Although yeah, yeah. probably drawn uh, some sometime before that as uh, as as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, um, Alex? How hard were you lobbying to come back and draw another issue? How much of that was your schedule? How much of that was your your lobbying or Tom Waltz's uh, encouragement? Um. This is during, this is right when COVID. So he had, I think I was in between projects and I was just like looking for something to do. And I hit him up the year, the end of the year prior, if I, if I remember correctly. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get you something on GI Joe. And like months pass. And it's, and I think it's right when COVID hit or man, my time frame is kind of wonky because so much has happened in between then. But, um, I think I ended up waiting like a good two months or so for Larry to finish the script. And it was during the time when like COVID was like starting or it was affecting the, the, the comic book industry. Mm-hmm. So 
I kept hitting him up. I was like, hey, man, are we still doing, you know, what's going on with G.I. Joe? What's going Because I was about to start this 100-page graphic novel, so I didn't want them to cross over, which they eventually mm. did. And, you know, that's why I had to just, like, buckle down and just, like, get it done and all-nighters and all that stuff I used to do when I was back at the Kubert School. So uh, I don't think I lobbied super hard because, again, I have a rapport with Tom, and it's not like I... He, and also, I've done a lot of stuff for IDW, so they know me there. They, uh, I've done miniseries, I've done uh, one shots, I've done covers, I've, all, so they they know me there, and they are very gracious at giving me work. So uh, I don't think either of us had to lobby too hard. Interesting. Yeah, I I um I noticed actually that you posted the the front cover to two hundred seventy nine your social medias back in june 2020 mm. so um it's obviously been a project that is long time uh gestating yeah. between between yeah first, those first mm. conversations and actually it hitting the uh hitting the racks yeah not only yeah yeah and especially uh hitting the racks i think it was delayed about two three months maybe something like that I, originally i think they told me that it was going to come out march like the first week of march and then it changed into the first week of April, and I think it just came out last Tuesday or so, the tenth. Okay, Tim, have you yeah. you got the the paper issue in front of you? What does it say on the inside front cover for the for the date? January twenty twenty one. January. Oh. Hmm. Um, yeah. Alex, uh, when you when you get work, when you are um, uh, offering your services to editors. Uh, you are only a penciler and inker together, correct? You're you're not trying to get work these days as just a penciler, right? Yeah, that's some. That's one thing that they taught us at the Kubert School is that you there is never anyone that can ink you better than you. So from the get go, I always presented myself as like the an all an all in one package. So I would say that ninety five percent of the work that I've done, I've inked myself. I can't even remember the last time. And when I wasn't inking myself, my pencils are so tight that they can just digitally cut, uh, digitally ink them, which I don't like because I think it kind of ends up looking a little bit muddy, uh, a little bit gray. But even when I wasn't inking myself, I kind of was because they were going off my pencils. A, a standard 20-page issue, right? It's hard to know how long this issue took you to draw because it was during another project. But mm -hmm. um, how long will it take you sort of in a normal scenario to pencil and ink 20 pages for a single issue? Normal scenario, it takes me, I've got it down to about eight hours now per, per page. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so 20 times, you know, you do the math. Right, so you, you, can, do a, you can do a monthly book, but it sounds like... Uh, yeah, oh no, I can definitely do a monthly book. It takes me about six weeks to complete an entire 20-page issue with cover. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I I came from the era where doing monthlies were, like, the, the norm, you know? Like, nowadays, it's it's tough to get to, to do more than six issues, six issues in a row, you know? But that's still, that's one of the big pro bucket list things left for me to do is to stay on a book, for a good amount of time i'd say about a year get 12 issues done um but you're finding editors less and less that are willing to do that because they like splitting it up because when you split things up 
even a pencil and inker when you split those those two up it's one th- you know if something goes wrong it's not all falling on one guy you know it's easier to dig yourself out of a hole when you've got somebody else helping you out you know i.e. inker yeah i th- yeah. i think in the modern era since there are seemingly less artists who can do monthly uh, or fewer editors who want to go that route. And some of it is also sort of taste. I think some editors want a book to be different every six issues as if the mm-hmm. readers are going to get bored. Right, right. And I think yeah. readers don't get bored. I think readers want consistency and readers yeah. want definitive runs, even if it's, you know, two years, not uh, five or, or six years. But mm-hmm. um, I feel like sort of the modern, um, like Marvel, DC, sweet spot might be uh one artist does four or five or six issues another artist does four or five or six issues and then that first artist comes back and does Mm -hmm. four or five or Mm -hmm. six issues and i feel like sort of the a b a of that is actually as far as it goes now and then by then it's like well the guy who drew the first six issues and then came back to do like 11 and 12 it's like well we're gonna gonna Mm -hmm. put him on like a new series he's gonna launch a new series like marvel definitely has quote a artist's who will launch a series. I mean, how many Marvel mm-hmm. series can we look back at from the last 10 years where um, one of those artists who's a household name for comics draws the first three or four or five or six issues. And then by issue 20, someone who's very talented, but not a name is doing that mm-hmm. series. And then by issue 40 or 50, it's like, well, time to launch this with a new number one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And it's it's it, it's really funny to hear like you're right you're spot on um it it is editor's taste as well but I, it's funny to like talk about like you know oh six issues in a row you know it's it's like such a, you pat yourself on the back for that but it's like I mean if you just go back to the eighties to the seventies six and everyone before that it's like they could do six issues standing on their head, uh, sitting on the toilet you know it's like <laughs> they used to I mean I'm like John Romita Jr. He, I love John Romita Jr. because every month I knew I was going to get his X-Men or Daredevil issue every single month. And I think he did it for like a good two, three, four years each book. You know, it's like I wish that time would come around again where they would just give artists more responsibility. Um, but then again, it's like the pedigree of artists is so different nowadays. It's like I don't even know if like artists are interested in staying on a book more than six issues more than like a story arc and also many artists draw more detail right it's like yeah Yeah. kirby was doing four books a month at marvel in the 60s -hmm. but Mm -hmm. he was also penciling more loosely and the inkers Mm -hmm. were doing a lot of the drawing and a lot of pencilers in the last 20 years uh either by choice because they don't sort of trust whoever the inker might be or by Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of training it's like no no Mm. i want to make this super tight pencils Mm. are now so tight that um inkers are uh, doing some of the drawing but Mm -hmm. you know there's there may not be as much of a you know like when john brissimo was drawing conan right it's like that book Mm -hmm. looks wildly different depending on who's inking because they're not inking yeah quote finishing yeah exactly yeah. Uh, yeah and um and I, you know, I, I can't imagine a lot of editors wanting that right now. It's like, yeah, you, you can draw X-Men, but your pencils can sort of be half of what they were when you were drawing super tight on that other book mm-hmm. last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Another thing is that I think 
I think artists have kind of, well, you know, when I decided that I really wanted to become a comic book artist was like the late 80s, early 90s, during a time when the artist was the superstar of the book. Mm. You know, the Jim Lees, the, the whole image group, you know, uh, the Liefelds and the Sylvester. And now it's it's totally the, the writer is the star of the book. Um, and I don't know what kind of effect that has had on the industry overall because the comic books are a visual medium first and foremost. I mean, yes, the characters are the real celebrities of the books and fans will always follow those characters no matter who's writing or drawing them, you know, depending on the quality. But I feel like now like the artist has taken a back seat to the writer and I don't know if that's a good thing because we are a visual medium because if you take our artwork away from the book, I mean, it's you can go to Barnes and Noble and buy those kinds of books, you know. Can you um so Larry Hama is known as a writer, but mm-hmm. uh, he's also an artist. Yes, he he broke into comics, drawing mm-hmm. comics, mm-hmm. and um, uh, can you uh, differentiate drawing a Larry Hama script now that you've done it twice? Yeah, from for other sure. comic scripts that you have worked uh, on. Yeah, absolutely. Larry, when he writes a script, he puts in like little tidbits in between page um page text uh and it's kind it's like super detailed stuff that only someone that has experience like dealing with like war basically would know so uh he'll say things like he'll be really specific about how a gun uh, reloads or the way uh a military figure uh salutes someone or 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 acknowledges someone their posture uh little things like that that when you read it you're like yeah this guy this guy's been in service you know and i've had i've worked on other books where it was military based and heavy technological stuff and they treat it more they kind of glaze over like those kinds of details whereas larry really lets you know lets the artist know okay, this is why this character is doing this in this particular way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yes, it does. Yeah, and I think particularly on this this issue, the t- 279, there's a lot of technical detail to, to, get, <laughs> to get right yeah. and get across. Um, I yeah. think the mind, the mind boggles at, um, at the process, to be, to be honest. Um, can we talk a bit about your... Um, art sort of technique and, and the process so so you sort of shared across with a couple of us uh, sorry with with a couple of pages with us mm-hmm. and and the the pages are striking in in terms of they they look different to to most yes comic art pages uh, that we typically see because there's a lot of um uh, almost sort of black and white painting going a sort of grayscale mm-hmm. painting going on and i'm not too sure what you're using but there's a lot of gray tones and and whiteout being being employed here for, for the technique and just the precision of the art makes me wonder as well whether whether you've been ping-ponging between um digital and analog techniques there as as you're progressing the the, the page so yeah maybe if you could talk about a little bit about the the process that you would typically typically use in the this unique look to, to your finished page yeah yeah there's no digital work going on there at all it's all you know 
on paper. Um, so I said that I was working in a 100-page graphic novel, and I decided mm-hmm. to take this G.I. Joe issue on. Um, I also decided that I want to work on more than double-sized pages. So these pages are, I think they're about somewhere in the range of like 22 by 34, <laughs> something like that. They're huge. <laughs> and the reason I did them at that size is because I wanted to be able to apply those techniques you just mentioned mark uh for example uh i was able to use airbrush acrylic paint uh all in grayscale uh colored pencils uh regular pencils you know ink washes that kind of thing that you wouldn't be able or you would you wouldn't be able to so much if they were standard you know 11 by 17 comic book artboard so uh the reason i wanted to do this is because Another thing, I'm all about crossing off stuff on my pro bucket list. Another <laughs> bucket list thing for me was doing a grayscaled issue. Like one of my heroes, Travis Charest, he did a book in the late 90s, which was an X-Men Wildcats crossover. Oh, yes. And it, was, yeah. and it was a world, took place in World War II, and it was all grayscale. So it's like, hmm, I want to do that for G.I. Joe. So... <laughs> <laughs> so that's what basically what those techniques that you see on the on the pages that I sent you. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, I wondered whether whether just uh, you know there's particularly on this issue because there's so much sort of technical detail in the in the um, the planes and all of this kind of thing. Whether whether there you, whether you'd done some of that layout um, digitally and, and then sort of gone back over it in um, uh, in the in the traditional um, you know inks and, and things but but yeah no, it's, all, it's all blank page starting from scratch correct yeah it's all blank page. and kudos to tom waltz and the guys at idw and the guys and girls at idw for allowing me to do that really i mean because mm-hmm. people don't really do that that often anymore which is sad i'm gonna ask a question that's kind of a statement mm-hmm. uh <laughs> drawing gi joe a real american hero is difficult and um i i think sometimes uh i think people are sort of uncomfortable with or forget to acknowledge expertise right like Mm -hmm. you know when someone's like oh man this looks so good how did you do that and and the answer is sort of this modest like well i'm very good at what i do and i've been doing it for a long time and i went to school Mm -hmm. for it and i'm a professional and i work very hard um Mm -hmm. so this is this sort of half a question and half a statement but because G.I. Joe has all this specific specificity, right? Like, mm-hmm. you don't just have to draw one jet correctly in this issue. You have to draw five. And mm-hmm. um, and then on top of it, it's this aerial combat, and you have to keep track of where characters, I mean, planes are, and uh, all these different characters, and, you know, how many missiles. So this is, this is a, a, a statement and a question specifically mm-hmm. gi joe or real american hero as opposed to say an issue of star wars or an aftershock graphic novel gi joe is a hard mm-hmm. book to draw mm-hmm. yeah because because there's so much technology on the page you know you have the uss flag you have all, all these planes and you know and all these characters wearing this techie armor it's like you got to pull out your straight edge a lot more often than you would if you were like you know, if it was like two Jedi fighting in the middle of like a canyon or something like that, you know, so you have a lot more freedom because the surrounding area and the objects near to the close to them don't require two lines to meet perfectly, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? So 
whenever you have to, whenever I draw GI Joe, I can rest assured that I'm going to have to draw a lot of buildings, which require me to pull out my triangles or my T squares. And so in that sense, it does take more time, uh, at least more patience and more focus. But on top of that, GI Joe, you're dealing with a bunch of characters on the page at, you know, all at the same time. So you factor that in as well. It's like these pages are going to take a little bit longer than it would the others. But it pays off. The issue, uh, the, the the black and white art of this issue looks so good. And the storytelling is great. Um, Thank you. And uh, we probably should transition to talk about the issue, uh, Mark, because I have my, my one sentence sort of top line response to this. I'm, I'm mm. eager to say it. So do you want to we talk about the covers <laughs> okay. and the plot and the... Sure. Yeah. The, I mean, the the reason that I, I thought that, that some digital sort of technology must have been employed because the, the the detail on these these jets and, you know, the number of times that they're employed, you know, it's every page has got, uh, you know, several vehicles um, very detailedly, um, you know, conveyed. I thought to myself, you'd, it would be nuts to do this completely conventionally on a blank no, Well, I'm a little... <laughs> I'm a little crazy, I guess. No, but um, I, I I love drawing traditional because you have the original pages, you know, to do with what you want. You know, whether you want to sell them, whether you want to stick them in your flat file and keep them forever, um, you at least you have them. So uh, I mean, for example, I'm going to Joe Fest. Uh, I'm going to be a, a featured artist at Joe Fest this year in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm going to take those pages with me because I know there are G.I. Joe fans there that might be interested in them. So it's yeah, to my benefit sure. to, to, to draw on paper. I, I, I mean, I can see why most artists actually prefer to work digitally because of the ease. You know, you don't have to deal with mixing paints or, 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 or applying ink or it's less it's not as messy, but you lose those original pages. I mean, that's that's big for mm-hmm. me. I guess yeah. it's just the time where I came from and the way I was taught or but yeah. Do you, so if they want to get if someone wants to get their hands on this original art, is the best place to to find you at Joe Fest? Or yeah, Joe Fest or, or, or uh tap you at, up an email. Uh, on my on my email or Instagram. Do you have, Alex, a rough idea of how much pages might what your asking price for pages <laughs> for this issue might be? Yeah, well, since they're almost triple size, I'm going to be asking north of 400 bucks mm-hmm. per page. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's being very gracious because normally my regular size pages go for about 400 bucks. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, it all depends. I mean, I, there are times when I've been to a convention and I've had like a stack of pages and I've had an art dealer come up to me and say, Hey, you don't want to carry all this stuff back. I'll give you this much. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Very kind of them. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Let's get Doug into this uh, issue proper. So we are talking GI Joe issue 279 released April, 2021. That was last week. We have got uh, the layout of the creative team, writer Larry Hammer, artist Alex Sanchez, colours Jay Brown, letters Neil Yutake, senior editor Tom Waltz, editor Megan Brown, and research assistant Diana Davis. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. 
So cover A is that double gatefold, both front and back cover uh, with uh, this sensational action sequence of uh, a pterodrome exploding as one, two, three, four, five G.I. Joe jets fly away. Yeah, Alex, do you want to tell us about it? <laughs> oh, man, it was such a long time ago. Uh, all I know is Tom Waltz, my editor, was like, okay, we need the Terradrome with these three planes and these three characters, or these two characters inside two of the three planes to be visible. So it was originally supposed to be a just a regular cover. I was like, we've got too much stuff to cram in here. Can I make it a double, a wraparound? It's like, sure. So uh, I made it a wraparound and uh, just went to town on it, had fun. One of the most enjoyable times I have had drawing a cover just because I was like literally pull, pulling out my toys, using them as a reference for some of the shots and like drawing it on paper. So um, pencil and ink myself and yeah. And suddenly this does not look like the interior art. There are there aren't uh, gray washes. I don't see right. comic markers. I don't see whiteouts. Um, yep. And the, yep. the, the nope. texturing and the detail in the backgrounds is is different. more traditional. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a decision. I decided to do the grayscale stuff after I had already done the cover because there was such a gap in between the time I got the cover assignment to the time that I received the script. So in between that time, I was like, hey, maybe I was like looking at like that issue of wildcats that i mentioned earlier and i was like hey i've always wanted to do this there's a subtle thing happening here uh, in in transformers comics uh i don't know if it's like a hasbro directive or an idw directive or if the artists just decide it's easier but um artists aren't drawing autobot and decepticon sigils the colorists are applying them and mm -hmm. that's so that they can put them in perspective and it's easier, right? It's just like a thing you can do in Photoshop. Um, mm -hmm. There's a cobra symbol, a giant one, on this pterodrome. And uh, it's not perfect, but it's drawn. And I like that because it agrees with the art. And I don't begrudge any artist in comics who, you know, just lets the colorist uh, lay in the cobra symbol, for example. Because mm -hmm. uh, that does save some time. And it, maybe Hasbro likes it more because they know it'll look perfect. Um, but I always find it a little distracting because uh, it doesn't quite agree it, it, with the art. Yeah, it looks like it's kind of layered on top unnaturally in some ways. Yes, I mean, that's not so much like I never received a directive from Hasbro or my editor saying don't draw, you know, the Cobra symbol. It's more I think it's more of just like the editor uh, having faith in the artist that he can do that. So I've always, I mean, this goes back to what I said about uh, going into the art, uh, Kubert school. Uh, they taught us lettering. And this is kind of like logoing is kind of like lettering in a way, you know? So anytime I get the opportunity to do symbols or logos or even my own lettering, because a lot of my, at least a couple times in, and and most of the books that I've worked on, I've always incorporated lettering, whether that be a sound effect uh, as part of the background. Um, it becomes part of the art for me. So Tom knows that I can do that kind of stuff and like to do that stuff. So that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And by the way, guys, I, 
I haven't even received my comp copies of this issue yet. So you what? guys have it before I do. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Uh, yeah, I think it's because for some reason, the first time I worked for IDW, I think it, like back in like 2005 or six, I think it was when I worked on 30 Days of Night, I was still living at my mom's. So I think they still send all my comp issues <laughs> to my mom's house, which is great because it gives me a reason to go and visit her again. But uh, I, I still don't have it in hand. I feel a little bad that Mark and I are just <laughs> going on and on. I've got the stack of G.I. Joe copies in front of me. Yeah, um, I'm actually sitting clothed in a bathtub, and there are actually <laughs> 80 copies of this issue up, oh, up to my neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's nothing. I've, I've built a little uh, vault full of them. I've just <laughs> dived into them and just swimming. Uh, uh, Mark, can you tell us about position. Cover B and the retailer? Cover? Yeah, so um, Cover B is by, I think it, this is probably pronounced Fico Osio. And again, it's it's aerial combat. We've got, I think this is the Sky Striker in the front. Yes. Um, with, uh, is it Night Raven is the big black one um, coming up behind him and then a Rattler in the distance. And it looks like maybe Manhattan um, scenescape in the, in, the, in the far distance behind that, that they're above, or at least some, some sort of... Uh, cityscape with uh with some high uh towers a lot of uh it's quite yeah quite a lot of muted sort of pale colors here which means that then the the planes themselves sort of pop a little bit uh more but uh yeah interesting very um kinetic so uh this is um i don't know if this is the first time that osseo has colored himself but this is the first time i've seen it and uh, he's best known in IDW land for drawing Revolution, which was the Hasbro uh -huh. versus miniseries crossover where uh, all the other Hasbro properties that had sort of quickly been introduced into the Transformers continuity um, met and fought. And um, uh, his, his work is uh, detailed and beautiful and he can pull off drawing very small things next to very big things like a person and a transformer and mm. uh, at the time I was uh, excited that IDW hired uh, he, he draws in, and I mean this as a compliment he draws in a, in a hot style right things are very it feels very uh, modern to you know Marvel and DC for the last 20 years um, mm -hmm slick and dynamic um and i remember thinking how exciting for idw that they've got this artist who's putting all this uh, detail and can uh, balance all of these different characters in this miniseries at the same time i thought uh as i often do i want this guy to draw the regular gi joe book <laughs> so here he is drawing a cover um it's very exciting and uh and it's cool to see him color himself and then cover C is John Royal with uh, Ace in his cockpit pursued by uh, Rattlers um, and somewhat of a throwback to the classic issue 34 shakedown uh, from Mike uh, Zek, which uh, was similarly themed with uh, uh, Ace and the Sky Striker in the foreground with uh, a Rattler looming large uh, behind him uh thoughts on this one tim so this one's uh inked by uh jagdish kumar and it's colored by james ofredi um 
this is, uh, I like this drawing, um, considering how dynamic and uh, sort of fast a lot of John Royal's covers feel, this one feels slower. And uh, I think it's, I think he's, he's balancing this portrait of Ace, right? Like the more this becomes a close-up of someone's face, the less room there is to include uh, something of his own jet and the jets that are chasing. But uh, even in sort of the angles of the Rattlers, uh, sort of how the missiles are being fired and the cannons, um, I do like this cover. Um, it, it's not the most action-packed and dynamic of Royal's cover run. Um, I love the colors. I always love what Ofredi does on uh, on Royal, uh, and I, I would love it if Ofredi colored more G.I. Joe. Um, what's most interesting to me here is comparing the three covers, because we, mm -hmm. we have a lot of months where the three or four covers or the two covers are quite different from each other. One of them does reflect the interior story, and then another one mm -hmm. is some other character in some other scenario. And uh, I may like those drawings. I don't really like those covers. I think covers should absolutely reflect the inside. Um, mm. But here we sort of, in a very general phrase, we have the same idea for three covers, you know, like aerial, action, make sure we can see the Sky Striker, make sure we can see uh, Ace, and then what changes are some of the angles, uh, color temperature, um, how sort of loud it is, and the specificity of the background. So with um, Alex's cover, right, it's like, that's the terror drum, even if we don't quite know where it is. And with uh, Osseo's cover, like we think that's Manhattan with some, um, with some forced perspective. And with Royals, um, the, the land and the sea below us are not specific, which I think is totally okay, um, but it is one less piece of information that he's choosing to include. Um, uh, I, I appreciate that we get a close-up here because, um, you know, there are little there are little things in Ace's uh, uh, costume which make him Ace, right? There's little tubing on his uh, costume and, and the red uh, details, right? And if, if you don't see that, it could sort of be any pilot. And so whenever we see uh, a Joe character, you know, partly out of costume or... Uh, in a costume that's sort of a more common type. I'm looking for those, you know, specific little cues that say, this isn't just any pilot flying any G.I. Joe Skystriker. This is Ace. Very good. And I think um, the timing of the production process probably uh, lent itself towards uh, having the, the artists being able to actually work on a, on a cover that meets the theme of the issue. Um, mm -hmm. Given given that um, the the lead in between um, you know the idea of this issue and um, the eventual publication date, uh, mm -hmm. I mean that that's a, a lot of a longer lead than, than there, there would normally be, which uh, um, somewhat necessitates um, a somewhat more uh, abstract <laughs> take on uh, on the cover uh, cover B and the incentive covers. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Um, I just right. wanted to um, mention oh. real quick that uh, actually Adam Gazowski was the one that colored uh, my cover. It wasn't Jay. Uh, he did the interiors. Yep. Um, Adam Gazowski, fellow Kubert School uh, student with me, he also did the entire issue of 251. He did the cover. He colored uh -huh. my cover and the interiors as well. 
Um, he is a great colorist. He was uh, he was given the opportunity to recolor the entire Eastman and Laird Ninja Turtles uh, run and uh, hardcover collection for IDW. So uh, and he's done, he did great work on there. I, um, so and he did great work. Uh, always does great work uh, when he colors over me. Thank so, you for this the is, fact check. Mm-hmm. And this is this again where you're you're sort of seeking out and recommending a colorist that you know yeah, complements yeah, your style. Yeah, yeah. When I um I had lost touch with Adam after school for a little while, and when I found out that he was doing color work for um for IDW at around the same time I was doing some projects for them, I said I want to you know I want to work with him, and uh, luckily enough Tom was both our editors so he made that happen and anytime i get the opportunity uh to have adam come on board on a project permitting his schedule because he's got his own things to do also um i always jump at it cool let's go in for a plot breakdown and find out actually what happens in this story here we go Cobra has launched an attack from its pterodromes in Frozen Lands onto the USS Flag, and we join the story as the Joes launch their planes from the damaged deck. Ace in the Sky Striker, Slipstream in the Conquest, and What's-His-Name in the Phantom X-19 Stealth Fighter fly on a mission to neutralise the Cobra aircraft launch sites. The Cobras attempt to lure the Joes into a trap from their launch base protected by a cliff overhang, ready to launch Rattlers and Hurricanes from behind defensives of sentry missile systems. The stealth fighter is able to take out those missile defenses and Ace is able to blow up the base with his laser guided bomb, but not before the Cobras launch their planes on a mission to attack the flag. The Joes are able to shoot down the Cobras before they are able to reach the flag, shake loose some jammed ordnance and land back on the freshly repaired retrieval deck. Yo Joe! Phew! Out of breath. It uh, it was a full on issue. There was a lot of action. Uh, Tim, can I go over to you for your hot take? Yeah. After after issue thirty four and special missions five. I mean, I don't mean this the storyline special missions five. I mean nineteen eighty seven special missions five. You know, every couple of years, I really want an all out aerial action and AAAA issue of GI Joe. Because I know that it's going to be great, and this is. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, sto- story and art. And it's also exciting to see Hama throw in so many characters. Uh, I appreciate that where, where Deep Six and Torpedo show up, right? They're not in costume, but mm-hmm. they're doing something that a sort of... N- non-named G.I. Joe team member would do to someone on mm-hmm. the flight deck crew. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't need a lot of generic sort of non-player character characters showing up in a G.I. Joe story. So it's like, oh, that's that's Deep Six, even though he's not wearing his costume. It's like, hey, neat. Whoever, you know, for whatever <laughs> fan, Deep Six is their favorite. Deep Six is in this issue. Yeah. Uh, I think that, um, once again, uh, this is the second time in very recent memory that uh, Hama has included a techno-viper doing something mm-hmm. very techno-vipery, which I appreciate because mm-hmm. I, I really mm-hmm. want to see um, the characters doing specifically what they what they do. You know, like, I, don't, I wouldn't mind seeing Ace and Slipstream in the jungle, whether or not they've just been shot down or they're just helping some, some Joes, um, but... 
there's a there's a particular thrill in reading pilots doing cool pilot stuff in seeing a crimson guardsman be a jerk to another mm-hmm. cobra because they kind of are superior they're they're the fancier cobra soldier uh and uh and 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 the fight choreo the flight choreography haha <laughs> you know I was, I was thinking when i asked alex that question gi joe is not an easy book to draw this is not an easy issue to write and it's it's not just that hama is a veteran it's that he does his research and he's thinking about this stuff mm-hmm. um so uh mark my 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 top down is um this is very exciting and satisfying and uh you know the the hurricane it's, you know I, I don't know a lot of people who love the hurricane i also haven't asked mm-hmm. a lot of people um <laughs> The vertical takeoff hurricane has deadly missiles that really fire. Fire! Cobra Hurricane comes with pilot. GI Joe Avalanche with driver. But you know, I, I see the hurricane and I, I just think of that like very toyetic extra missile drone thing on the top and how goofy it looks in the Deke episodes with mm. some really goofy sound effects. Um, <laughs> you know, like its colors are a little too uh, bright for me. Um, but I don't, I don't want just Rattlers and Night Ravens, you know, mm-hmm. I, I want, I want real American hero to embrace all the way to 94. Mm-hmm. So, uh, very exciting issue. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I was left almost somewhat breathless at the pace of this issue. There was, it felt like there was just so much being fit in to such a, you know, to, to, into those 20 pages or, or so, and just, action at uh at such pace you know seeing all of those those, those vehicles the aerial combat um all of the different moving parts of the, the the kind of the jigsaw that that um was being constructed in terms of uh the the story and trying to keep track of um what was going on who was where, where what the different bits of peril were it, it's it's uh it felt incredibly dense and um, you know, very carefully considered in in terms of the way that the story is put together from the from the writing, but also the way that it was executed in in the in the arts. And um, it, the, the, I sort of touch on some of the some of the things that kind of stood out stood out to me. We uh, were dropped right in the middle of uh, the the action, and it's somewhat a counterpoint to actually the the previous issue, the two seven eight. Where the uh, the story begins with cobras at a uh, terradrome that's uh, had a uh, an attack recently launched on it by the by the Joes and the the, the cobras launching uh, the the counterattack. Here here we've um, got the the flag that has recently had had the attack and and now the the Joes launching their counterattack. It just feels yeah very dense. We've got lots of technical jargon, lots of um, describing weaponry and keeping track of weaponry and what's uh uh what's been what's happening with them so very early on we're we're introduced to this uh weapon rack glitch that is on the the sky striker which uh, we return to by the end we've got lots of time bound peril um so the joes have to to get out there and and attack the the base before you know before the cobras are able to to launch another attack they've got to fix the landing strip on the on the flag so that the the joes can get back and and land at the end of the mission otherwise they'll have to ditch their their planes in the drink 
There's uh, the Cobras who are able to launch Rattlers every two minutes. There's this uh, targeting system that, that's been taken offline and the Techno Viper is uh, rapidly trying to, to fix and bring it back online so that he can, uh, you know, get those defenses back up and working. Um, it's it's uh, a whole lot uh, going on in just, uh, just a few pages. Um, it, from from the point of the the script and as as you were uh, drawing it, Alex, did did it feel like that to you that there was that there was just this incredibly dense piece and and trying to keep track of exactly what's happening and and where was it was it did it feel like a bit of a a jigsaw puzzle to to unpick? Yeah, yeah, uh, especially towards the end where you have the malfunction part of the story kind of mm-hmm. with the uh, with the with the Sky Striker coming in. Um, just the order in which some of the planes are trailing the others. Um, but I mean, that's what your editor is there for. And that's what everybody else on the team is there for to kind of keep you in check. You know, every time, uh, a page was turned in, uh, a colored page, even, um, our editor always asked, you know, Hey guys, you guys see any inconsistencies, uh, you know, and sometimes I don't think there were really any in this issue. Um, but you know, that's what the team is there for, to help each other out. And I do remember at the time of working on this issue, just thinking, this reminds me, it's just like a good old-fashioned air battle. You know, it's mm-hmm. like just straight on. There's no sidetracking. There's no uh, uh, subplot that's going to spring off. You know, none of that. It's just straight on battle. Um, and it reminded me kind of a little like the chase in uh, Mad Max Fury Road where it's mm. just like one long chase scene in some sense it was kind of it, it, it kind of harkens to that yeah and it's it's a point that that I notice is, as well is that in so much in a G.I. Joe comic we often will see the focus on more of the the characters the, the you know the, the the characters involved and and the, the, mm-hmm. the plot and less mm-hmm. so on the vehicles and this is a very vehicle centric issue and specifically the plane centric mm-hmm. and as as um tim says these are very few and in far between there's there's a there's issue 34 there's the the issue a couple of issues in in special uh, missions um so so it's yeah there, there, and then there was a there was one uh, uh with the the phantom uh, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago as 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 well but but yeah they sort of come in a few and in far between and, and probably this feels, you know, a lot denser than those in terms of the number and the variety of mm-hmm. of planes in in the air and the sort of focus on those through throughout the um, entirety of of the of the issue. Um, in yeah. fact, you know, we, we've been we're reading the Devil's Due issues, um, and uh, we've noticed, you know, noticed before that some of those issues go by and you barely notice a vehicle mm. <laughs> in them yeah. at all. Whereas here it is, you know, it, it, it is there, 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 there. They're front and foremost in the in the driving the story forward. Yeah, I, I'm I'm hoping that the reason you know they gave me a shot at this issue in particular is because they felt they knew that I would be able to handle the amount of vehicles that was in the issue. Also, uh, in comparing this to earlier issues, right? Remember, everyone. Sorry, I mean you guys all know this. Remember, listeners, <laughs> uh, the Marvel issues were 22 pages. And mm-hmm. the IDW issues are 20 pages. And I'm always, um, in, in a curious way, not in a critical way, as I read a modern story, wondering if I can see where 
the story may have breathed differently had this story been told 20 years ago. And initially mm-hmm. I thought, um, uh, I'm really enjoying this expositional dialogue on the first page that's catching me up. Uh, mm-hmm. If this was two pages longer, would there have been more of, of the story uh, unfolding at the very beginning? And I don't think so because Hama has started uh, in a lot of G.I. Joe stories uh, you know, just in the middle of, you know, like issue 97, you know, there's a couple of Joes hiding behind cars and they're just getting shot up. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's not like a B plot that was introduced earlier. It's like, no, no, these Joes mm-hmm. are just, just Larry's just jumping into a new story. Um, and then sometimes I wonder if at the end of a, of an IDW issue, would this story have breathed a little differently with one or two more pages at the end? And, and I, I don't, I don't see it in this issue. I think, I think this is a 20 page story that got told in 20 pages. Um, mm-hmm. The final panel, uh, to me, echoes the finale of Special Missions, <laughs> where uh, the Joes land uh, the Defiance on the flag, and then they all pose for the uh, for the camera. And I think I might have ended the is- issue two fifty one like that too, right? Uh, if you guys can remember, yeah, put it in um, front of me. It's um... uh, I'm. I'm embarrassed to say I don't have it in front of me. Uh, I, I, I just had this bathtub full of, of 279. <laughs> Can you hear it splashing? So the paper is yeah. sliding. Paper. Um, yeah, just let, let me climb out of the vault and see, uh, reach across to, to my other book. <laughs> um, so um, 251 ends with Stalker sort of being given a pack on the, pat on the back by his uh, colleagues uh, oh. on, on the mission. And they say, are you kidding me? The Stalker man never drops the ball. Mission complete. Huh. So mission complete. Um, is, okay. Is the For some caption. reason, I thought I thought that they had all you know they were all pumping their fists in the air like they did in issue <laughs> seventy nine. Um, but that was me. That was um. I mean, that wasn't in the script. It was just you know the GI Joes. I think if I remember, the GI Joes just kind of gather together and embrace each other somehow. Or, mm-hmm. but uh, there were two things in the last panel that I had to get in there. I had to get them in there pumping their fists doing the traditional mm-hmm. yojo call and i had to get the havoc in there because it's my favorite joe vehicle <laughs> uh so um so this is the reason that the havoc was was there <laughs> yeah so as a yeah. as the kid in me loves this final panel the critic in me um i uh i want to say this gently because it's uh because the 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 talented artist who drew it is is listening um uh i think i'd rather you say to tom like, okay, you have to have me back in a year to draw an issue about the Havoc. Um, I like seeing the Havoc. I want to see you draw the Havoc. Since the Havoc hasn't appeared in the issue thus far. It's in the issue before, in some of the pages, on top of the, on the flag. Oh, yep. uh, Very small, but it's there. Uh, well, all right. Um, <laughs> uh, fair enough. Which, uh, you flicking back to see if you can spot it. Also, and, and, and in, to, to, follow, to follow this thread, uh, I don't mm-hmm. begrudge anyone who's gonna cram in their favorite stuff. And certainly if the final panel is uh, open Mm. enough for you to interpret, uh, you should interpret it. Um, I think since the issue is all about the pilots, uh, the Admiral and shipwreck, I think my preference would be in the final panel that it's Mm -hmm. maybe like an hour later, all the planes have landed and it's the guys that we just saw in the issue. Though I don't begrudge Mm -hmm. you for like fitting in. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because I saw, I saw, um, I, I had a look on the message boards to see what the discussion was, 
about this issue and one of the, one of the questions was what was the the havoc doing uh, doing on on deck if the <laughs> if the um, elevator was down was it the priority to get it down and i and i come up with a mental no prize for that already but it sounds like i don't actually need it my no prize <laughs> was they they've just rushed to to get the um uh, the, the the lift fixed and they're lifting out the the havoc onto onto deck because they could use some of it. its uh its defense capabilities you know it's got a big missile rack of missiles there and it's got their their cannons and maybe they could uh they could use that as a defense as the uh as the um uh, rattlers are, are coming uh, coming towards the the ship it's really none of that. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's all for selfish reasons. Uh, you can blame me. I needed to put a havoc somewhere. Um, so yeah, it's, you can blame me. Uh, I was, I was going to say, uh, Mark, the, the air, uh, the air thing, the flying thing that comes out of the back of the havoc. It's like, well, plan B is in case one of the pilots needs to, uh, eject, uh, we need to fly mm-hmm. out and pick them up or something. Yeah, you know this is why GI Joe fandom is so great is because you guys are coming up with all these theories as why the havoc there is there, and it's really just because I wanted to draw the havoc. (laughs) (laughs) I do like that. I do like the fact that we've got the Joes there, sort of pumping there and going, "Yo, Joe!" But then we've also got uh, Order down next to to Law, and he's going, "Woof, woof." (laughs) Yeah, those are um. Throughout this entire issue, I wanted to get in as many of my favorite Joes in the ba- as background characters as possible. So uh, I don't know if we passed that point in the issue where uh, Shipwreck and Killhaul are at the on the deck. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the background, and they're in the control room in the background, you can see the leads of both the animated movie and the Deke series. You got Lieutenant Falcon and Scoop talking to each other, looking at the damage uh, of the flag outside. Is this this might be covered by a word balloon? Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Is this yeah. is this the tall panel where we see yeah. both yes. them in, in yeah. profile? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out the window. Um, yeah, mm. there's there's a word balloon. Sorry. Ah, but thank you because I, <laughs> uh, I I like I like more. You know, I, you know, few, fewer green shirts and more specific Joes. <laughs> that's that's my jam. Had to get scoop in there. I love the Deke series. I mean, they're not as good as your original, but they have a soft spot in my heart for sure. Tim, you're, you've also got somewhat you you you're much more of an expert on the Deke series than most, I think, as well. Um, yeah, I feel like that's its own not even podcast episode. I feel like there's a ten episode podcast series where myself and some people talk about the Deke series because <laughs> there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of good in in amongst the uh, not so good. Yeah. Well, if, if that ever if that ten part uh, episode ever happens, please have me on when you guys talk about the theme song because that theme song makes me want to run through a wall sometimes. It's so amazing. Yeah, <laughs> oh, um, Mark, what is next on our? We we we've got talking points and then we've got I Spy. I was just going to say um, while we were talking about that last panel specifically that. Um, I, one of the satisfying things for for me is actually the colors in that in that panel. I do like the the sort of setting sun at the end of the day. It's sort of the the missions drawing to a complete, you know, missions complete, and and it's a yeah satisfying sunset um, effect. I know that Tim's not always the the greatest of fans of uh, of the coloring of the the Joe Joe book, but 
I th- I think you know it was uh, it was a hell of a task on on this one for the for the colorist um, uh, Jay Brown um, and you know the the differentiation of the the sky and water that dominated a lot of the uh, this this you know this, the landscapes that were being dealt with here you always got a sense of the the kind of the geography and and the the positioning of the various things of, of where they are in the sky versus the the sea the 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 land um i th- i think it was generally pretty a, a effective use of of coloring and even the um the sort of the the more realistic photo elements that are kind of used in some of the sky and and the sea um you know really uh worked for for me was there much toing and froing, um, Alex, with you and you and Jay as this was progressing? Trying to was there no. was there questions coming about how to interpret specific things? No, not really. Um, I don't know if he's had uh, prior experience working on like grayscale kind of artwork, but uh, no, not really. I mean, the the whenever I did like the sky and uh, the background that kind of stuff, I usually did it with like uh, like a mixed media. When, mm-hmm. whether that be an airbrush or acrylic paints or whatever. So he had um, kind of like a template or direction. So mm-hmm. I, I think we, in that sense, uh, he knew how to treat my artwork. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise the counter opinion. Anything that he don't know Ain't a thing that's worth to know Pull him back and let him go Criticism Here come the nitpicker Timmy Finn Analytical prankster Timmy Finn Picking holes in your colouring Timmy Finn Still not your joke Timmy Finn Mark is correct I am not always the biggest fan of the colouring in A Real American Hero uh, the photos for water and sky don't work for me. I find them mm. distracting. Um, mm. And on the final page, the top left panel, where we're looking down at the flag, and the mm-hmm. flag is sitting on a like four-mile square printout of a photo of the ocean. Right? Like oh, I don't. I wish I had the issue in front of me. I, I don't. Oh, then I'll. I'll uh, Mark, I'll, I'll address you. When I look at that panel, I don't see the flag sitting in and on actual water. I see something that was drawn sitting on a photograph as if it's like <laughs> the flag toy mm. on a table mm. and on the table is a photo. Um, mm. and, and every use of actual water photography uh, and similarly does not work for me and takes me out of the story. I think that Alex draws... Uh, very busy exciting detailed backgrounds like all of these rocky cliff faces and uh, some aggressive uh sort of dirt or ground where the techno viper is standing Mm -hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. um the colors 
need to do much less on these busy inked backgrounds mm. because the inking is doing so much. And that's a good point, Tim. That's actually whenever I, at the beginning of a project, when I get asked, you know, choose from these colors, basically, I basically tell my editor, you choose, just find a colorist that is the opposite of the way I draw, which is I'm very detailed, busy. I need someone that just basically puts on flat colors because the work is already there. You only have to put mm -hmm. the color on top of it, you know, basically. So, um, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know. I wish I had the issue in front of me so I can kind of see what you're talking about. Um, but I know that uh, I was... In, in general, I'm happy with the way the issue came out. I'll, I'll, I'll quickly point out two more examples of where I don't mm -hmm. think um, Brown's color agrees with this book. One is on mm -hmm. page six. There's a top panel. First time we see the Techno Viper, and he's, he's at a control panel for a missile launcher. Mm -hmm. And the light source for the missiles, which is just behind him, is from above. And the light source for the control panel is in front of them. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I, I see this in many issues of GI Joe where everything is rendered, everything has a highlight. There's a lot of K, there's a lot of black mixed into colors. I find it muddy. Uh, my my final example is on page uh, eight. There's this what looks like a dust cloud of glowing green emerald crystals, but it's actually a forest. <laughs> It's actually a bunch of trees and um mm -hmm. yeah. brown when he colors the desert around the pit to me it doesn't look like sand it looks like mm. orange lava when he colors uh trees whether it's at night or at day they're all these tiny glinty soft round um highlights uh i think i think this book needs this book and particularly this issue needs uh less rendering mm. Mm -hmm. Are we able to get, um, should we move on to iSpy, where we just have a look at uh, little details that we've noticed? Yeah. I spy with my little eye. Okay. Okay. I spy uh, no females in a lead role in, mm. in this issue, yeah. uh, which is, uh, is only, I guess, worth noting just purely because of, of if you've been reading uh, the recent issues of uh, G.I. Joe, it has been very much front and center that 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 the the female characters are are you know playing such a huge part of the the book you know dawn granny demon felix uh, uh bomb strike um uh laura the crimson guard um i could go on and on and on um mm -hmm. yeah in curious to just to, to to note and observe that for for this one um we've i think only got uh, Lady J on that mm -hmm. uh, last last panel. Lady yeah, J and she Scarlet. was yeah, and she was thrown in there because I wanted to draw Lady J, so she wasn't even in the script that I can remember. Uh, I was going to joke. I spy Falcon and Scoop hiding behind a word balloon <laughs> on uh, page two. Um, I I shouldn't say this definitively because every time I do, I'm wrong. But is this the first appearance of uh, Vapor, the the hurricane? Pilot I believe a... it's the first appearance of both Vapor and the Hurricane. Mm. That's that. So I spy that. I spy uh, the Sentry missile system. So I understand that this was uh, released as a Sears exclusive in 1985. Originally released as a uh, red hiss tank with a red painted uh, missile rack uh, mm -hmm. on tow. Um, I spy. 
Um, when uh, Ghost Rider, the, the pilot of the stealth, does show up, <laughs> um, uh, I feel like there's always a very specific... Uh, I guess it does happen. I guess he, he says it this time. He's like, you still don't remember my name. But mm-hmm. I feel like whenever he shows up, it's someone else who refers to the fact that they can't remember his name. So I, I guess this isn't even worth calling out because the joke is the joke is maintained. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, we've got, I thought this was a really cool little touch. Um, we've got the Crimson Guard as kind of the lead Cobra in this issue, which is again, is an echo of what we had in, in last issue where we had a, um, a snow serpent as the, uh, as kind of the lead uh, Cobra and um, there's a particularly nice touch that when he's sort of in the in the hurricane or, or the other vehicles, um, he's sort of plugged in with a this breathing apparatus tube that feeds into the bottom of his mask. I thought that was just yeah a really cool uh, little touch. Mm. I think um, I think that was my idea too because how are they going to breathe when they're at a high altitudes? Yeah, it's perfect. I didn't. I didn't even. It sort of felt so natural. I didn't even uh, pick up on it on the, on the first read. But yeah, it's sort of just this, you know, nice little touch. You sort of you're sitting, getting into the uh, into the uh, hurricane. There's this little hole in the bottom of his mask, and you sort of just this hint of this tube. And the next time you see it, it's all all plugged in. Yeah, just just one of those things that just makes sense and works. Okay, my last I spy was that uh, on board an AV aircraft carrier flight deck, uh, the crew has different color uniforms, which distinguish uh, the sort of the role that they play. And um, we've seen this before that uh, that in Silent Option there was a reference to blue shirts on on deck, which uh, was the they handle logistics. And, and this time around we had uh, Deep Six in a red shirt, which denotes that he's an ordnance handler and torpedo in a green shirt uh, which denotes that he's looking after the catapult and arresting gear crew uh, so um yeah nice little touch and um, sort of uh, le- educating us on real world uh, you know aircraft carrier roles mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah an actual yeah, those... green shirt as opposed to the devil's due green shirt which denotes that they're um, uh, infantry yeah let's move on to uh oh sorry yeah alex was was there any is it was there any little sort of mini easter eggs and things that uh that you wanted to point out that that maybe we've not spotted mm, i think i've you know between all three of us we've pointed them all out um yeah you know um uh actually on the final page uh-huh. uh scoop and falcon are in the havoc you just can't see them because of the <laughs> reflection on the cockpit are they? No, no, sorry, I'm doing a bit. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I was like, I don't remember drawing that. Very good. <laughs> was there? Was there a, of this of this issue? Was there any? It was. There, was there an element that was um, particularly satisfying to to draw that that you were most proud of? And was there an element that you found uh, trickiest? Um, the pages I'm most proud of are probably the pages that have the heaviest mixed media work on them. Mm-hmm. You know, the heaviest paintwork, the heaviest uh, colored pencils and all that stuff. Um, and then I would say the most difficult page is, I'm looking at the original pages here. Um, 
page. Oh, okay. Page six. Because working out the positioning of the character in the foreground amongst all this cavernous background took me a little while. It took me longer than I expected. I'm, mm. I'm guessing that embedded in that statement is that in the plot you got from Hama, it says something like, uh, down in the valley with mountains behind it, a techno viper mm -hmm. stands in front of the missile mm -hmm. control panel. It's like this missile thing and four hiss tanks. And there's like, Correct. What's, the, what's the netting called that hides? Uh, there's a technical term, which he wrote in the script that I just can't recall, but yes. And there's also uh, a little bit of water. He did describe the net. Yep. Yep. This, all those things a, that you just said, he just a, did describe. There's a pond or a stream behind him. And so, mm -hmm. you know, one, so one guy, four vehicles, uh, an accessory, an ex another accessory, the geography, uh, all in all in one panel, and then also you know leave room for word balloons to not cover up important stuff. Yeah. Okay. I take it back, Tim and Mark. The most difficult page was actually page five because it had the interior of the uh, Terradrome landing platform, mm -hmm. and the last panel. You see all the um, the ceiling of the uh, of the structure. Mm. I remember that drawing all that stuff in perspective took me a little while. <laughs> so between those two, between pages five and six, uh, those were the ones that I spent the uh, sleepless nights on. <laughs> I think because I like Techno Vipers so much, I, I think uh, I think my favorite page is six. Oh yeah, um, but you know that's that's the page with no aerial action, yeah. at least out outside of a cockpit. So. Yeah, uh, that's that's my friend is a huge G.I. Joe fan, my best friend, and he's been trying ever since I finished it to for me to give him that page or sell it to him or whatever. You should <laughs> definitely sell it to him for at least four hundred dollars. <laughs> I don't know. I can't I can't feel like I'm taking advantage of him since he's my best friend. Mm. Oh, maybe yeah. I'll trade it to him for like a toy or something. Any less. And maybe he's taking advantage of you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, cool. Um yeah, sure. Let's move on to um, Error Detected. Error Detected. Error Detected. No prize incoming. All right, I'll, uh, I'll start. On page 19, this is the second to last page, the final panel, we're looking down at the Sky Striker as it's flying angled toward us. And then uh, below it is the flag, because I see part of a nine uh, for 99. And um, the entire ocean that we're looking at, that the flag, because we're looking down past a plane at an aircraft carrier, the entire ocean is, in fact, a photograph of the sky. <laughs> and I guess my no prize is that uh, the ocean reflects the sky. Mm -hmm. um, but Nice. Uh, and then... Um, on page 17, um, in the second to last panel, right, it's, it's, a the hurricanes coming toward us and there's a jet behind it, which has just fired two missiles and the vapor is saying, where did that stealth come from? But the jet behind it is the conquest. And when I read this, I wasn't sure if that should be the 
the stealth or if the stealth is like off panel and and that's sort of the surprise of the vapor is that sort of he can't see it either uh, and I'm sorry to say I don't have a no prize for this. Uh, this uh, I, mm. I, I wondered if if I'm reading this wrong or if um, something in the art or the the dialogue here uh, is glitchy. The, I, I'm just as confused as you are. <laughs> I have in, no idea, and I can't recall. In the dialogue, the next on the next page as well, it says, uh, "Thanks for saving my bacon, uh, buddy." because he can't remember Ghost Rider's name. And uh, he replies, no problem, Slipstream. So it does imply that, um, from the dialogue, that uh, it is the stealth that has saved the uh, conquest. Hmm. Um, I've got one more, uh, which is page uh, 1415. The final panel of page 14, uh, wordless, no, no dialogue, no sound effects. Conquest is launching a missile, which is very big in the panel, close to us. Mm-hmm. And I don't have my Conquest in front of me, but I recall each each wing gets two yellow missiles and a gray uh, bomb or external fuel tank, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just launched one of its yellow missiles. And then on the next panel, on the next page, first panel of the next page, it appears to have a full complement of its missiles. Ah. That I, I, I raise my hand. That must be my fault. So the, my no prize is that in the game that I'm, where the story is just a game that I'm imagining as I'm holding uh-huh. my toys, right? It's like mm-hmm. these, these vehicles have, you know, it's like, uh, um, it's like Metalhead firing missiles in the Deke episodes. He fires his missiles and then he has more missiles, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Conquest fires a missile and then I just grab a piece of plastic and I stick it back on and then I fire another missile. <laughs> Okay. Um, the one that I spotted was uh, just a speech balloon, which is pointing at the the wrong place. Uh, so it is on. I'll have to figure it out. So I think it's sixteen. Uh, it's the bottom panel has got two rattlers, the conquest behind them, and there's a speech bubble pointing at uh, the hurricane, and uh, the speech the speech bubble says, "Lost lock on one of them, and now I have a hurricane on my six. Um, which I think should be pointing towards the conquest, but uh, these things. Um, mm. I've got half of an error detected uh, <laughs> on. Uh, uh, I'm do- doing this sort of scratches my nerd itch, but it also makes me sad because um, you know <laughs> I, I, I want to be positive. Anyway, uh, mm. on page six, the aforementioned and mentioned page six, which introduces the Techno Viper, um, in the first panel. Um, I think the Techno Viper is talking. I think he's saying, I've got a glitch in my targeting system. Mm-hmm. And the the, uh, the outline of the word balloon is one of those, like, um, it's coming from a radio word balloons. Mm. So there's, a, mm. there's a, there are wiggly lines to show that it's like, yeah, yeah. coming from a speaker. Um, right, right. So I, I usually that means that, that we're hearing, it's like that points to sort of the earpiece of this, I guess, Techno Viper. Mm-hmm. But I think he's saying it, so I guess he's saying it, and I don't know, he's he's radioing it to them. And then similarly in the next panel, I think he's continuing to observe uh, while while I'm offline, while my missiles are offline, someone else is going to mm. have to do the missiles. Do you acknowledge someone else? And then um, in the next panel, uh, he said, he says, um, "I've got you covered, number two." Um, and 
And a couple pages late, uh, one, two, three pages later, the Techno Viper is, is fixing his missile control panel. And his word balloons are normal. They're not the sort of electric talking through a radio. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think this is a lettering issue. I, I, I lost the thread here of sort of who the Techno Viper was talking to and mm -hmm. which, techno, which person uh, doesn't have missile capability. I, I believe he's talking to the, Co I could be completely wrong, but I think he's talking to the Cobra Viper. Or the, uh, yeah, no, not the Viper, the, um, the Crimson Guard. Who's up on the plane. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I, you know, now, now and then, I mean, not just in G.I. Joe, but now and then in comics, I'll see, you know, a word balloon that's aiming in the wrong direction or mm -hmm. someone yeah. who's the wrong color. And I always cross my fingers and hope that when this story gets collected in a, mm -hmm. in a they fix paperback, it. they fix it. And yeah. more immediately since that paperback may be a couple months away, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the digital files for people reading online, uh, I, I, I think mm -hmm. that's a little easier to, uh, to fix. So uh, my fingers are crossed that these word balloons. Yeah, I mean, it just all depends on how much time and um, how much of the team they can devote to that stuff, you know, but uh, they should. Yeah, I'm not I know that they... excuses for them. They they have before tried to to fix stuff in between the uh, mm -hmm. the, the individual issues coming out and the and the trade. That's good. Uh, so. I I don't uh, I don't have the trades because I have the issues. So I, I mm -hmm. should also add if they have fixed mistakes, thank you. I I, I didn't notice, but thank you, thank you, team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there was a um, Rob um, Atkins was talking about the time in the snake hunt when. Uh, there were some G.I. Joe's colored to look like a uh, Cobra troopers that are clambering on top of a, a vehicle and uh, that they they didn't catch that in time for, for print. But uh, we're going to try and fix it for the uh, for, for the trade. And uh, yeah, I imagine that uh, the trade is probably still a little ways off because I don't think we've even had the uh, snake hunt um, trade come out yet. So, mm. so I think there's, uh, there's time to do it. Yeah. Cool. I uh, going back to a top line. Uh, reaction. Uh, I, I know I've said this before. Um, I love Hama's ongoing story, right? the soap opera, the world building, the you know B plot and C plot that then becomes the A plot a couple months later. I love the cliffhangers. Um, uh, Hama is particularly strong with single issue stories, and. Mm -hmm. I, I mm, always I find those satisfying. The original special mm. missions, the more recent special missions, Untold Tales, the very occasionally issued just inside the IDW run, which ends up being self-contained. Mm -hmm. uh, and I and think. you know, I don't give these to people to read because I don't I don't know random family members and strangers who want to read a GI Joe comic in 2021. <laughs> but we do sell it at my store. But it's these self-contained mm -hmm. issues that uh, I I I would enjoy mm. giving to people to read mm. yep. okay uh let's move on to hammer time Stop. Hammer time time to beat the soles of your boots with my face sucking chest wounds red ninjas brain scanners rubber hooses blue ninjas and some more sucking chest wounds hammer time so 
this is a segment where we look at any sort of recurring motifs that uh, that particular that Larry likes to employ in in his stories and, and turns of phrase and so on. Um, I think across this issue, there's just uh, there's a there's a number of things around sort of the specificity of um, the uh, all of the ordinance that is being used and and the colloquialisms and the jargons uh, that are being employed. There's a lot of uh, there's even a lot of um, editor call call outs in in this issue, sort of to try and explain some of them. Uh, but mm. the the one that I'll I'll hone in on is the specific turn of uh, phrase of Winchester, which has uh, fast become one of his favourites to denote that uh, someone is uh, running dry on their uh, their arms. Mm. And I think it might even might even uh, occur three times in this issue, um, or, or at least at least twice. But um, uh, yeah, one of his uh, new favourite terms of phrase that we've uh, we've seen over the last few few issues. Was there anything um, uh, anything from you, Tim? Yeah, um, Deep Six saying, but be warned, one of the triple ejector racks for the MK 82s caught flak damage, and there's no time to swap it out. You're carrying three bombs that might not pickle. Copy. Uh, this is this is more a plot point than it is a little turn of phrase, mm-hmm. um, but uh, Hama creating a small um, problem or deficiency mm-hmm. which a character specific to like weapons or gear right like the radio is broken but not even that spe- not even that general right it's like the antenna got snapped something like that <laughs> uh, and then later on you know Ace may or may not be able to uh, to 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 drop drop this ordinance um and then again generally in the story sort of the choreography of uh which plane is where uh who has to cover who and who's out of ammo and then on to colloquialisms there used to be a pudding that was over egged you know the pudding you know the pudding. At first it was British, but then it was Commonwealth. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. But now there's a new player in town. A comic book writer of, of some renown. He's using real world examples and peppering the issues with, with lots of samples. It's a Larry Hammer colloquialism. He's talking G.I. Joe and all its heroism. Can you guess what it is? Is it something new? Now listen as Larry drops a slice of real life on you. Uh, well, Slip, Slipstream mentions uh, Yo Joe Cola on the second to last page. Is that <laughs> is that a homism or, or is that a, mm. is that colloquialism? Mm. That's it's a drink. <laughs> I mean, so we have. I don't think we've seen it referred to in a bit. Yeah, the um, the uh, there was certainly lots of jargon and and sort of turns of phrases that there was. I noticed references to pulse dopplers, EMRs, GBU runs, and all aspect mm-hmm. sparrows. Um, there was a turn of phrase which was money run when um, uh, I think it might have been uh, Ace was was talking about making a, a money run. Mm-hmm. And and I looked this up, and I don't know if this is what it was in reference to, but there there was a a book and an adaptation uh, that that referred to this that um, in 1971 the U.S. military delivered their payroll in Okinawa in unmarked bills on a single helicopter, and that payroll flight was called the Money Run. Um, so I don't know if that's a uh, linked. 
but uh, it's a certainly an interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting mm-hmm. reference. Um, I, I when I read the script, I always took it as just all right. This is our one shot, our right. last shot to uh, handle business, you know, against Cobra. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it definitely reads. Uh, definitely reads as, as something along those those lines. It was just a yeah in, interesting turn of phrase that I can't mm-hmm. remember hearing before. And he had a lot of those, like you had mentioned before in this issue. Um, this one of the harkens back to what we talked about earlier about like the difference between the way Larry writes and maybe another writer who was handling a military theme series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely it's it's definitely the those those lines and and those turns of phrases that and the specific specificity around the um you know the weaponry and and some of those military jargon that you just wouldn't mm-hmm. get. From a, for another uh, writer, and I guess mm-hmm. you you don't necessarily even see those until uh, you see the um, the finished page because they're not right. necessarily going to be defined in the uh, Larry's exactly, Marvel yeah. style script. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Alex, you you're drawing from the plot, and then you you saw colored pages later, and you did not see lettered pages. Uh, the PDF did it have? Sometimes it does have. The letter, yeah, I did see the finished with the lettering, I did, yeah. Right, right up. Okay. Um, another one I picked up was when they said, uh, they said in the dialogue, "Settle that conquest's hash," um, and yeah, settling a hash is an, another interesting uh, phrase that I wouldn't use in everyday la- language. So I, I looked this up, and and uh, you know, as what does it mean? As you ex- might expect, it means to uh, to kind of subdue or to get rid of something or someone. So he's talking about settling that conquest hashes in, sort of dealing with it and you know mm. blowing it out of the sky. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, the hash in in, in question is a, me- a mess that's been made out of things, and apparently it's been around since around eighteen hundred. Uh, so uh, yeah, a long-standing turn of uh, turn of phrase. But, uh, getting another airing here. Hmm. Did you have a favourite line of dialogue? Quote of the week, 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 quote of the week. I I did on page uh, one, two, three, four. The uh, Crimson Guard has gotten into the hurricane and is saying to the pilot, the Vapor, uh, he's putting him in his place. And he's saying, <laughs> yeah. uh, the pawns are sacrificed to lure the powerful pieces away from the king, leaving the king exposed and at the mercy of rooks and knights. Over these three panels, these two have this conversation explaining the idea behind which jets are needed to you know, go attack the flag and, and that the flag is vulnerable because only three jets got off the flag. So here's a, here's a metaphor which explains mm-hmm. in one sentence the entire issue, which which has already, yeah. I mean, the, the the and the issue has already been explained to you, and then now you get to see it all play out. Mm-hmm. It's just a, mm-hmm. a a nice turn of phrase, a nice metaphor, yeah. mm-hmm. and also prefaced by uh, the Crimson Guard saying to him, "You're just a vapor. You aren't seeing the big picture." Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I guess I guess my favorite line is is two word balloons spoken by one person continuously. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the one, the one I, I, I had a hard time figuring out which one to go for, but I thought um, it was a panel that you referred to earlier, where uh, they're on deck and the person in the red shirt, which is Deep Six, was was just giving a whole bunch of uh, ordinance uh, um, extrapolation of, of what what's going on. So he goes, 
Okay, Ace, you're loaded for bear with six MK82 500 pounders, two MK84 paveways, and two AIM 7 AA missiles. Yeah, which kind of puts me in mind of Harrison Ford saying to George Lucas, you know, you can write this stuff, but you can't, <laughs> you can't yeah. say it. <laughs> you can write this stuff. Um, but also that that specificity of uh, of Hammer of you know really out outlining you know the detail of uh, mm-hmm. of the um, ordinance be, you know being employed, which um, uh, you know does play into a plot point as as the story progresses, both in terms of you know what what uh, the the various aircraft have got to um, work with in the air before they're fully you know expended and running Winchester. And, and then you know he follows on to to talk about this ejector rack that's uh, caught flak flak damage, which uh, again is a is a point of peril that needs to to be resolved by the uh, mm-hmm. by the end of the uh, issue. Mm-hmm. Who is the MVP? Most valuable person in these issues. Who is the MVP? Is it a culprit Joe or the enemy? So, um, MVP, who was our favourite character in this uh, particular issue? Alex, let's let's start with you. Um It's gotta be it's gotta be Ace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the Havoc. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, just Ace because he's I, I believe he's the one that's sprinkled throughout most of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, from he's the avatar of the of the reader, I guess. Yeah, for for me, maybe it's probably a toss up between uh, the vapor, just in in terms of just the novelty of seeing seeing the character appear for the mm-hmm. for the first time. Um, it's, you know, always char- cool to see these these characters that have been in existence uh, for uh, a very long time. Because yeah, this the, the figure was introduced in nineteen. 19- 90 so so after all it mm. has been in existence for i guess over 30 years at this point yeah but never never being seen in a in a in a an era story or, or maybe oh, that's that's odd i mean i i would have figured that by now he would have been in at least an issue or two yeah yeah i mean these things uh these things happen um i mm. i had thought that um the snow serpent hadn't appeared until the last issue but um I, uh, I realised that there's been at least one issue that they um, had appeared before issue 278. So that's a fact correction for the mm. uh, last episode. There was an issue uh, that SL Gallant did the cover for where uh, Blizzard is sort of sneaking up uh, on a snow serpent about to, to whack him with the butt of his rifle, which I, I shamefully actually own the cover to that. <laughs> Wow. Oh yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and so I actually have that piece of art, but I still forgot that uh, Snow Serpent has Ma- previously Mark, appeared. You're talking about a first appearance of Snow Serpent version one or two? Uh, one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I think that may have still been the first appearance of uh, Snow Serpent version two. And and my other MVP sort of was the was the toss up between the, the Vapor just for it being novelty and uh, the the Crimson Guard because you know whenever you've got uh, a sort of a uh, a, a sort of more infantry character, you know, where you, they're, they're the Cobra Legions, but they're sort of mm-hmm. you know, stepping up into a kind of a lead role. It's I always mm-hmm. find that quite uh, quite satisfying, particularly if they act like a total uh, a hole, like yeah, this guy. Is. Yeah, it's an interesting choice. Um, which I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That's kind of something I think you might have even mentioned it earlier. Um, it's kind of something that Larry likes to do is pick, you know 
those regular characters and put them up on a pedestal for the issue or for the story or whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it it works. My uh, my MVPs are uh, Falcon and Scoop because for them for them to get from the deck of the flag behind Keelhaul and Shipwreck, right when when the whole thing's on fire, to yeah. the cockpit of the Havoc, right? The, the story. Um, uh, my actual MVP is the Techno Viper because mm. I love purple. Yeah. And he uh I I I desperately I lightly desperately always want to see all these various vipers doing very specifically what what the toy sort of has them doing. So I want to see mm-hmm. techno vipers fixing things. I don't mean like computer fixing things. You know, they come with a giant wrench like fixing mm-hmm. a tank. Yeah. And to have to have this techno viper fixing the missile launcher but also operating the missile launcher and then that he's he's checking in with someone else it's like well my missiles aren't working what about you and then later on uh an undetective stealth fighter right like oh there must be three jets up there right so mm-hmm. he's he's reading the tea leaves or i guess he's actually excuse me he's actually figuring out the evidence uh but then he and then he gets this 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 dramatic line of dialogue. He's on his knees, which has body language I really like, how he's down to fix the, the control panel. Um, mm. But I have to get it up and running or a launch base is doomed. Mm. Um, so uh, I, uh, mm. I, love seeing, I love seeing the Techno Viper. Uh, I love that he, he gets to do several things. And he's a bad guy, and he doesn't make it out of the story. So uh, the, arc is, no. the arc is complete. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, okay, and then Yo Joage. So this is where we give the rating out of ten, and uh, we're under slightly more pressure than we would normally be because we've got the artist of the issue with us. So I'll I'll go I'll go go first. So um, I thought it was enormously satisfying issue. It was very much its its own thing as well. So sometimes it feels like maybe the the issues are kind of coasting uh, coasting along, or or it's an, an an issue that's part of an overall. Uh, plot but this is very much you know it's as it's you know as it and it says it's an untold tale it's one and done but more beyond that it's i think an issue that is very much its own thing and and stands out outside of the pack of the the others in terms of you know the the way that there's this focus on this this you know really uh, yeah very focused mission with the with all of the uh the planes and and this uh you know bombastic aerial combat that that we see that that was so satisfying so so yeah definitely i think it's an issue that stands uh head and shoulders above the the average that we would see for for um the, the idw uh run uh, i enjoyed it a, a lot and uh yeah i'll write i would uh, rank it quite highly uh as such so sort of i'd, I'd put it up there i think last time i gave uh an eight so so i think uh to be fair i would probably rank it al- alongside that and go with another eight Oh, that's nice. Thanks. I'm going to give this an eight. Uh, this is a great story with great art and great storytelling. Uh, as as we've said, because it's self-contained, it, it works on additional levels. And as, as a store owner and also as someone who likes to give away comics on Halloween, <laughs> uh, 
Um, and I fantasize about just giving a lot of G.I. Joe comics away to lots of people, whether I know them or not. I can do this with this issue. Um, I've been thinking about what would get to a 9 or a 10, uh, because I haven't gone higher than an 8. Um, and uh, this isn't fair, but you know, reading a comic is so much of the object for me, right? It's, it's the actual object that I'm holding. Um, mm. And... Uh, you know, I, I don't love the color uh, on this series, and there are a couple uh, errors in this issue which which confused me. But um, with my magic wand, IDW would print on flat paper. Mm. As both a reader, right? I, you know, mm-hmm. I sit under a lamp, and when I read comics, if there's mm-hmm. a glare on my page, this is an IDW. This is everyone, right? Yeah. Um, I should say most most of the publishers. Um, I really like flat paper. You mean like matte paper? Yeah, uh, Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, jeez, uh, I wish it would go back to newsprint paper. Actually, to be honest with you, and newsprint <laughs> is more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of strangely, it's more expensive mm-hmm. than than a coated stock. Um, mm-hmm. But and you know, DC will will trot it out. They've got this. Uh, they've they've done some of their Jack Kirby reprints in the last few mm-hmm. years on it. Mm-hmm. On this, uh, I don't know if it's technically a newsprint, but it looks and feels like a newsprint. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, no, I, I, th- I think the actual newsprint is it just deteriorates too quickly. But whatever, something like a newsprint, you know, like I think this this stock paper that they're using, it's too slick, it's too glossy. It's also um, too, and it doesn't smell like newsprint, <laughs> like the whole newsprint stuff does. Uh, it's also too heavy. Uh, when yeah. when I pick up a short box or a long box of mm-hmm. modern comics mm-hmm. versus a long box or short box of older comics, when I pick up a diamond, you know, our distributor, like a diamond mm-hmm. box filled with mm-hmm. modern, like Marvel paperbacks, mm-hmm. it's like uh, we get these double diamond boxes, and mm-hmm. and they have a sticker on them that says Team Lift, right? Like two people mm-hmm. should lift yeah, this. Yeah, need more than one. Yeah, forty-five pound uh, box, wow. and. You know, and I'm sure, like, you know, a business person or a, a, a VP at IDW would would say, like, that that doesn't, you know, that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the issue, and also the entire infrastructure of colorists and pre-production mm-hmm. uh, is about. It's like the levels and saturation that we print mm-hmm. on this paper, which can absorb this much uh, ink as opposed to mm-hmm. you'd color it differently. If you knew you were getting a different paper, DC, I don't know what it's called. DC comics publishes some of their books on a very thin mm-hmm. flat stock. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, this isn't a helpful example, but I know that the, uh, like the Andy Kubert, um, Damien miniseries from mm-hmm. like four years ago, it was four issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, other mm-hmm. things have been published on this, but that was published on that stock. It absorbs all of this modern, exciting computer color and the blacks are not as rich as on a coated stock but they look great and it's not it's not heavy and it doesn't reflect the light bulb behind me no so sorry i'm, I'm going off on a tangent no uh, it's, it's interesting actually i'll probably uh email andy about it andy was my my mentor in the second year of the cubert school so uh, it's an interesting question to, uh, to bring up to him aha uh-huh. well I, my manager and i at my shop uh we we talk a lot about you know, comics as objects and paper stock mm-hmm. and French flaps mm-hmm. and logo design. Um, mm-hmm. Every so often we pick up a new DC book and we say, we point to it and we say, oh, it's that paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Marvel doesn't use it. Um, but uh, for uh, this is this is a this is a solid eight. This is a high eight. And it, I don't know that 
how likely it is, but for IDW, for an IDW issue for me to get to a nine or a 10, I think I'd need different paper and, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and different color. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's unreasonable, Tim. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, Alex, you're, you're welcome to give yourself a score or we can just take it as red that, that it's a 10. Well, <laughs> I, I probably can't give you a score, but what I will say, I will compare it to issue 251 and I will say that 279 is not only my favorite Joe uh, project that I've worked on, but one of my most famous pro- uh, favorite projects that I've ever worked on just because I'm drawing G.I. Joe. I'm completing uh, the bucket list with the mm-hmm. uh, mixed medium. And the experience of always working with Tom and Larry has, has, has been great. So this is up there for me. Uh, I'm not going to give it a rating because I can't really... You know, if I'm going to rate my own artwork or anything that I worked on, I'm probably give, a, give it a low rating because every time I'm done with anything I've done, uh, <laughs> I'm not. I always can pick out, you know, the errors. Yeah, uh, you can only so, see but <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, I don't have any of my artwork hung up or anything like that. I don't like looking at my own artwork. Um, yeah. But I will definitely say that this was such an enjoyable project, and I had a great time. And uh, yeah, okay, cool. Um, so I think that's all us all wrapped up on our talk of 279. Mark talks about toys, ho ho. He talks about G.I. Joe. He talks about all the toys from the comic book and the animated show. Mark talks about toys. Mark talks about toys. Yeah, I, I want to hear Alex talk about a G.I. Yeah. Joe toy. So so Alex, over to you. What, what G.I. Joe toys do you want to talk about? 25th anniversary but um i actually have a cool little story about how i came to own a uss flag um i've always wanted one ever since i was a kid um i remember asking my mom at a woolworths whether she can buy the uss flag for me and she said no it costs too much money so uh my friend Bobby, who I believe owns one of the, he's in the definitely in the top ten as far as largest GI Joe action figure, Real American Hero collections. And this guy has three USS flags. He worked wow. at Hasbro, uh, so I'm sure he had connections or something. And the guy had three USS flags. I'm saying, I said to him, "Stop being greedy. How can I get one of your USS flags?" He said, I don't know. You think of something. So what I did was I I create custom figures. I created a 12-inch custom steel brigade figure with his head sculpt underneath the helmet. And I decked it out. I, I, I decked it out with all kinds of ammo and guns, submachine guns, uh, hand weapons, knives. Uh, I even put in a backpack. Every, completely decked it out put everything inside a military hard case, an actual uh, wartime used military hard case that I found online. Uh, and we traded that for the USS flag. Um, and I have the USS flag now. I still haven't put it together because I have to okay. go through it and see what pieces are missing, buy them. And then I want to do a whole kind of restoration upgrade thing on it mm-hmm. where I'll, I'll make it look weathered. I'll give it actual LED working lights and monitors. And when I'm done with it, I'm going to film the process for uh, my YouTube channel when I eventually launch it in the next month or so. But it's going to be like basically the build a USS flag 
project, which I will document and show to everyone that's listening. That and this is awesome. this is Bobby this is Bobby Valla that you did this. Bobby Valla, yeah. Uh, he he um the Action Force uh, owner of Action Force. I also did an issue uh he he's actually self-publishing Action Force comics. You can buy them on his on the Valaverse website and he's up to issue 3 or 4 now and I did the Steel Brigade story in the third issue which came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, and he's known in the community as the Steel Brigade he is the i mean he owns the largest collection of steel brigade vintage figures and he also has the caps and the patches and the uh, certificates that each he means a completist so he has it all (laughs) so of course i had to do a custom steel brigade figure for him alex where where will in your home where will you put how will you display (laughs) this super flag well, I am fortunate enough to have a large art studio where I have my toys and collectibles. I have my art equipment. I have my printing equipment. I have all my business equipment here, so I have the space. Uh, it's already set up. It just needs to be put together, thankfully. Otherwise, it'd be like our dinner table or something upstairs <laughs> in my house. And uh, and make sure as well that you check out on YouTube our, fr- our good friends over at uh, GI Joburg who did a, a big yeah. flag uh, project and they they actually attached uh, floats and so on to the yep it. yep so I saw that launched yep. it out uh, onto <laughs> onto sea Fantastic. oh really <laughs> that's great that's great I tried to get my um my hovercraft to float but uh, when I was a little kid but it didn't work out. Oh, <laughs> Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. What, what else do, do you want to talk about toys? So you've, uh, you've got your, your 25th anniversary. Have you still got any sort of the, the vintage line as well from, from no, your childhood? no, no. I, unfortunately, um, I told you about my mom throwing out my comics. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to keep all my action figures, my toys and my mom's, uh, office in her business when she had a business um because after school i would go there and hang out you know we didn't have a babysitter so i kept all my joes and my vintage star wars figures all in her office and then one day uh she got her office was broken into everything was taken i lost all my toys and i had to start over from scratch but i never did start collecting the uh vintage joes again because I don't know. I mean, I had so many. I had even more than my Star Wars figures. I just didn't, I, I couldn't commit. I was probably collecting other things at that time. So it wasn't until 25th anniversary came around where I was like, all right, time to get back into G.I. Joe. And, and you immersed yourself in the uh, the 25th anniversary collection. What do you, what do you, what's your favorite uh, figure or, or couple of figures well, from, I have, from that particular? I'm, yeah, I'm actually holding my two favorite figures right now. Um, one of them is the Sergeant Slaughter San Diego, San Diego Comic Con exclusive, not the um, the USA, uh, the one that has the uh, USA on his um, on his outfit, but the the one that you could see in the cartoons, the regular blank top, uh, blank uh, the top, and uh, I this figure. All I can say is that when he this is the figure that completed my 25th anniversary line because I already have all the other figures that are cartoon accurate. I don't have every figure in the line, but I have the ones that best represent the cartoon, the cartoons. So this figure was the last one I needed. And maybe about five years ago, he was going for about 120 bucks, something like that. Mm. 
And last year, I was snooping around, you know, the internet to see if I can buy one, and they were going for like 250 bucks, something like that. They had basically doubled in value in the last five years. And I was like, no, I can't do that right now. I can't spend 250 bucks. I had a fan of my of my comic book work reach out to me who also happened to be happens to be a toy grader. Uh-huh. So he's a huge Star Wars fan and is a huge fan of the work I did for Star Wars The Old Republic uh, back in, when Dark Horse had the license. Mm-hmm. And he's like, do you have this mini comic of Star Wars The Old Republic? Um <laughs> And this mini comic was only available at San Diego Comic Con in 2008, I believe. They they flew the creative team out. They flew me in and the the rest of the guy, the writer out there, to do a signing at San Diego Comic Con. And they printed up these mini, uh, like hollow foil wrap around, uh, Star Wars comics. They made like 500 of them, I think, or something like that. I did the cover for it also, wrap around. You can see I love wrap around covers for some reason. <laughs> um, so he was like, "Do you have that?" I'm like, I think I might have a stack of them. Um, let me go check. So I checked. I had a nice little handful of them. He's like, if you give me two, sign them both. I'll get them graded, and I, they'll stay in my collection forever. I was like, sure. Can you buy me the Sergeant Slaughter figure? And he said, absolutely. So he bought me the Sergeant Slaughter figure, and he also got me a, an alien figure by NECA. So... That was that was the uh, the bookend for my 25th anniversary collection and a cool little story that attached to it. Excellent. And yeah, if it's a swap, then it's free. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Alex, I asked you about where you got your comics as a kid. Was there uh-huh. was there a toy store nearby? Um. Well, there was. Uh, it was a a small. I don't know how big or small they were, but it was a chain toy store called Kitty City. I don't know if you guys are familiar, or if you're familiar with it, Tim, being uh, here on, on the East Coast, I believe. Yeah, Lionel, uh, Lionel Kitty City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had, they were more prevalent here in the city during the 80s than Toys R Us was. We didn't get a Toys R Us until the mid-90s. And then that was like a small little, you know, small little crappy Toys R Us until the big time square one came around. Uh, but yeah, Kitty City... Uh, comic book stores, like I mentioned, Big Apple Comics, uh, West Side Comics, and Funny Business Comics were my go-to. Were you getting toys at uh, drug stores or? Yeah, pharmacies, stationery stores. Um, I mean, even this past, you know, a few days ago, I went to the stationery toy store uh, by my mom's. I was visiting her, and I found a seven-year-old mint packaged. Ninja Turtles figure from the Nickelodeon series from 2012. And the guy's like, I think we might have more of these. I'm like, do you realize that this figure is about seven, eight years old already? He's like, oh, no, I didn't realize that. So it's like, what a, you know, a, a gem you could find, like someplace that I never thought they would have like a toy. This, I mean, it's not that old, but I was definitely the local toy store guy growing up. You know, we didn't really have big chain stores, like I mentioned, like a Toys R Us. Kitty City was here for, you know, three, four, five years, and then it was gone. Then after that, and even before that, it was buying these kinds of toys at the local toy shops, pharmacies, and, uh, stationaries. And this is New York City, just to clarify. Yep. Yeah, you, which is strange. Were you yeah. um, were you allowed to go on the subway or the bus by yourself at an, an early age? <laughs> not until, no, not until I was, I think, like 13. Okay. My mom did not even allow us to go to Central Park 
with un- unattended. Okay. Because, you know, for yeah. kids in the suburbs, the only way to get to the comic or bookstore is if, you know, you, your, your parent drives you. Yeah, yeah. No, we, by, by, when, I mean, because col- I've been collecting toys ever since I was a kid. I never really stopped. I took a little break in the early 2000s because I became so frustrated with transforming the Masterpiece Transformers <laughs> that I was like, I don't want to deal with toys anymore. And I sold everything. But, um, I've always collected toys and from the time that I was that my mom would allow me to venture off on my own I always grabbed a bicycle or a skateboard or rollerblades and made those toy treks and you know went toy hunting to this day I still do it cool Um, and you said you had a second figure um, yeah the second yeah second figure is a actual it's actually a custom a figure, um, and I loosely say custom because it's the comic book two-pack Snake Eyes. He came with, I think he came with a Storm Shadow or maybe like a Ninja figure, but it's a two-pack. You know, um, 25th anniversary released comic two-packs where it included an original raw comic reprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is this then the, uh, is this the Battle Damage Snake Eyes? No, no, yeah. it's the other one um, where he's basically all blue. Uh huh. Uh huh. But I love my favorite Snake Eyes is the very first cartoon Snake Eyes, which has like you could see his hands and he's got purple in the visor and he's got purple in his little pouches. So I took that blue Snake Eyes, swapped out the blue gloved hands for some skin colored hands, and I painted him with little highlights of purple where they were in the cartoon. And this is like one of my favorite figures because um, I just love that Snake Eyes. And I love the one that uh, the radiation snake eyes too that they made. <laughs> That's like so niche. <laughs> I know, I know. But I love. I mean, that series is what made me fall in love with GI Joe. Like I said before, the comics. I know the comics came out a little bit before them, but I wasn't that hip as you know to reading comics just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so the cartoons were, and that first series. Uh, I mean, to this day, I think is the best thing that. G.I. Joe cartoons has ever done. Maybe aside from uh, Resolute or Resolution, uh-huh. the one-hour little um, s- one-hour special animation yeah, thing yeah, that yeah. they did. Yeah, yeah, that that's fantastic too. Very good. You'll have to shoot me a, a photo of your your custom. Yeah, I'll definitely. Dro- I'll drop it in on the uh, social media and the, uh, definitely, the YouTube definitely. when we, we put that together. Sure. Cool. Yeah, I think. I mean, we've been uh, we've been talking a long time, but it's it's as always, it has flown flown by. So uh, we probably uh, have to have to wrap up as uh, as much as I'd, I'd think. <laughs> Love to okay. keep on keep on talking. We've uh, we've taken up enough of your day. Um, no, 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 no. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you guys for inviting me. And uh, hopefully, if I work on another GI Joe project relatively soon, uh, you guys will have me back. Yeah, it would be uh, yeah, be an absolute privilege to to have you back as uh, as it has been to have you on the uh, on the, on the show today. And it's been yeah, great talking to you, seeing uh, behind the scenes on on your uh, on your art processes Thank as you. well. That's been very uh, interesting to to hear and just uh, get sort of some of the. Uh, some of the stories from uh, from your your side, as uh, yeah, we both uh, we both love uh, hearing about the uh, the process of uh, how these this, these things come together. Because yeah, comics are comics are complicated and they're hard work, and uh, sometimes you just breeze breeze through a comic and you forget about uh, all of the effort and, and work that's gone into into making uh, making the thing. Yeah, it it is it is uh, a tough industry to get into, mm-hmm. but to maintain. 
Uh, there's a lot of networking that you have to do a lot of, um, not politicking, but you know, you have to pick and choose your spots. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to become familiar with people's personalities, editors, personalities. And, um, like I mentioned before, um, first year of the Kubert school, we had a student body of 200 and by the third year, I think there were, we were down to like 30. So, you know, the, 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 the the tough stick around. Yeah, Yeah. 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 The, you know. Um, so where can, uh, where can, if people want to find out more about you and your work, where can people best find you? Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Alex Sanchez art page. I have an art page there. Um, you can find me on Instagram at ironhead77. Uh, I'm pretty active on both. And then I also have a Friday toy review show with a couple of other buds called the Infinity Equation Podcast. It's on Fridays here in the States at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern. And we talk about toys, toy news of the uh, of the week, and our, we talk about our toy hauls. We get into movies a little bit. We get into comics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be launching my own YouTube channel called Studio Tizzy in the next month or two. Um, I'm, right now, I'm in the middle of putting together all the content. And... Uh, yeah, you can find me on there and all those places. Excellent stuff. Uh, Tim, where can people find more about you and your book project? Facebook, A Real American Book. Instagram, A Real American Book. Best of all, A Real American Book.com. Check the index because the blog goes back eight years. Mm. Um, and if you want to find out more about Talking Joe, best place to go is talkingjoe.co.uk is our website and that has got the links to uh, the facebook page where we're always having interesting discussions uh, the twitter page uh, instagram and the newly launched patreon so uh, thanks to uh, jay sam and richard uh, our patreon backers uh, they are able to receive some exclusive content as well as early access to all of the latest stuff. Um, So I think that is us done. We will be back possibly in uh, two weeks to talk about uh, the next issue of ARA, which will be 280. So uh, be spectacled, beautiful and brilliant and bombastic. Beware the Baroness bewitches in the final untold tale from living legend Larry Hammer alongside returning G.I. Joe artist Ron Joseph. Uh, But before then, we will be back talking Disavowed from Devil's Due uh, 2002, issues 14 and 15. When all said and done, you can catch us down the road. Because we've been talking Joe. And we're all out of Joes. But we could keep on talking forever, it feels like. Laters. Bye, guys. Thanks again, Alex.